Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Bloody Disgusting and The Rap, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN, and uh, anybody else will have me. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, when people write in, they call me Rockmeister McCool. Because you, sir, are a Rockmeister. We- and also, you're McCool. We, and I've got received uh, maybe 20 different spellings on that one. There is, there is, you know what? I'm going to say this. All of them are correct. Yeah. My personal favorite is M-C-K-E with an umlaut, W-L. Cool. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of vowels to swallow in that one. Anyway, uh, this is the podcast here on the Critically Acclaimed Network where we review new movies. And we've also started a new section of this podcast. Uh, that's the Cancel Too Soon. Uh, cancel Too Soon. It's the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club. <laughs> that's our other podcast. One of our many other podcasts. Uh, but uh, yeah, we've got a new uh, streaming club because there are no new movies in theaters right now. Because the theaters are all closed right now. And we want to talk about new releases on streaming. We're going to talk a bunch of those today. we got uh, the new film on Amazon Prime, Blow the Man Down. Uh, we have the new drama on Hulu, Big Time Adolescence. Uh, the new drama on Disney Plus, which actually debuted last week, but we didn't get to it. Stargirl. Uh, and the horror sci-fi thriller on Netflix, The Platform. Uh, however, since we're all on streaming, we should note that only watching new releases is only getting a tiny piece of the puzzle. So we wanted to take this opportunity to better ourselves, improve our horizon. So every week, Whitney and I are putting up a poll, uh, and which is full of films on one particular streaming service that at least one of us hasn't seen before. Right. And we, then we, we're all going to watch yeah. it together, and we'll review it on the show. Yeah, we each select. Uh, they're usually four films, and mm-hmm. little sauce. How the sausage is made. We select two each mm-hmm. that we haven't seen ourselves. Yeah, and uh, by sheer coincidence, uh, this week's was one neither of us had seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that could go either way. And every week, we're going to switch streaming services. Uh, the first two polls uh, have been up on Twitter, but after this next week. Uh, they will all be up on Patreon, and every single member of the Critically Acclaimed Patreon, patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network, gets to vote for those every single week. So this week, we went through Netflix's Poultry Classics section. Which and has maybe 24 films in it. It's pretty thin. And eight of them are Indian films. Um, nothing wrong with that, but no, that not, it not, gives you a sense, that, of, but yeah, the, what, sense of the cross-section we're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and the one you picked was uh, Stanley Kramer's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Best Picture uh, nominee from 1967. Yeah, won uh, Catherine Hepburn the Academy Award for Best Actress, her third of four. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we're going to get to that at the back half of the episode. Uh, but for now... Let's start talking about this week's new streaming releases. Whitney, where do you want to start? Let's start with The Platform. Yeah. Because The Platform is... Um, Pretty topical. Top, topical, political. <laughs> it's... Um, okay, here, here's, here's your quote for the box. It's like Snowpiercer, but better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. insane. So if, if you recall the uh, Bong Joon-ho's film Snowpiercer was a big class metaphor about a post-apocalyptic time and the only way to stay alive was to stay aboard a train that had to constantly move around the world that had been frozen over. And it was called Snowpiercer because it could, like, burst through the glaciers that formed over the tracks. Right. Uh, at the very back of the train were the poor and the destitute, and they were all starving to death and living in complete squalor. And up at the front were the wealthy uh, yeah. who were running the train. And the film mm. was about uh, a, an uprising from the back of the train that was trying to move to the front of the train, mm. led by Chris Evans. Um 
And every time they get to a new car, each new car represented some facet of society that mm. was totally fucked. Yeah. 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 And, it's and, not and a how, subtle film, but I do find it very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, speaking of not a subtle film, here's the platform. Uh, yeah. This is a uh, Spanish film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... It takes place in uh, what is essentially a prison uh, where people go voluntarily mm-hmm. uh, to what and I think they they get some sort of prize if they stay through well, our or, protagonist not... our protagonist of the film mm-hmm. uh, has agreed at the beginning of the film he's going to spend six months uh, in the in the prison mm-hmm. uh, they call it the hole uh, and at the end of six months he will be allowed to like he'll be he'll be free. And he will be given a college degree. That's right. Flat yeah. out. You basically get um, a wish. Some people yeah, only get an option of, you were going to prison, you can choose prison or the hole. And they mm-hmm. choose the, like two years yeah. in the hole. And the way the hole operates is uh, at the very, very top of the of this tower, or mm-hmm. maybe it's below ground. It's never really explained. But at the very top floor, the there's a bunch of chefs preparing a sumptuous banquet. And they lay out a big table. And it goes down floor by floor, down to... Floor two, floor three, mm-hmm. uh, and each floor, each floor is yeah. one prison cell mm-hmm. with a big hole in the middle for the platform. And, and there's two people in each cell. And uh, mm-hmm. as it goes down, people can grab food off. It stops at each floor briefly. People can eat as much as they want. And it goes down. And of course, by the time it goes down a certain number of floors, of course, there's no food left. And yep. by the time you get down to some of those floors, people are starving and desperate. Uh, some people are murdering each other and uh, eating even, each even, other. Even eating each yeah. other. And then once a month, you're randomly selected for a new floor. Like, you're knocked out and put on a new floor, yeah. kind of at random. So at first, our, our hero, he, he's in, I think, like, floor 48, mm. which is considered pretty lucky because there's still food left. Because the, the platform doesn't stay there for, like, an hour. The platform is on your floor for, like, 60 seconds. And you get, yeah, eat as much as you can in 60 yeah. seconds. And if you keep food, uh-huh. like, the, the floor begins to heat up or freeze you to death. Yeah, so you can't store food, you can't uh, the, hoard yeah. it. The platform isn't on any kind of you, wires, it's like yeah. an anti-grav, it just sort of floats the, from floor to floor. The platform's um, practically magic, yeah. it's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, the, um, the whole thing does make well, sense. Well, of course not, yeah. it's all a metaphor. Mm. Um, our hero uh, wakes up on floor 48, that's the first floor that, that he's on, uh, and he spends a whole month with a guy who has been in here for a while and has seen some shit. And after a month has he gone seems by, remarkably well fed. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he, he gives him some exposition, tells him some of the way things are, and then a month later, uh, he's they're, they're, they know it's their last day on this floor, mm. and uh, the guy says, "Okay, I don't know if you believe in God or something, but pray we get a good floor." Mm. And then they wake up, and it's like floor one hundred and forty-eight. Yeah, which is like. As far as, the, they don't actually know how many floors there are, but yeah. they think that's right at the bottom. Well, they're pretty close. They know there are floors beneath them, because you can look down the hole yeah. and see people below you, and you can even talk to them. But mm. everyone hates everyone above them, and everyone hates everyone below them. Because mm-hmm. they, yeah. the people below them, fuck them, why do they get food? I'll take all the food I can get. And the people above us, well, they didn't leave us any food, those fucking assholes. Yeah. And you may notice kind of the metaphor of the oh. film is that, theoretically... The banquet at the top is enough food for literally everyone to eat their, to, maybe not their fill, but enough to get by, enough to keep themselves alive. But because everyone assumes that everyone's all in it for themselves, no one's thinking about the greater good, the greater whole, uh, the people at the bottom get fucked, and the people who are arbitrarily at the top mm-hmm. 
And they're only completely there by chance. Completely yeah. by basically every month they're reborn. Basically, they're just reborn at a different level. Mm. And like, oh, well, I'm level six. Good, I deserve it. I'm on level two hundred. Fuck, I don't deserve this. Mm. Same thing. Um, so the idea is, if everyone only ate what they actually needed to survive, there would be enough food for everybody. But no one does that. Mm. And possibly, if our hero can convince people to eat the food. Only the food that they need. Maybe that'll crash the system and they'll all get out. But who the hell knows? Yeah. Maybe he's just being naive you know, and the is, system will destroy him. This is a really great fodder for a good short film. That yeah. much. Uh, and if this had been maybe a 15-minute film, it would have been great. Uh, but they start throwing in all of these extra wrinkles, uh, which are exciting to watch and make the film sort of rich and scary. They, they keep but adding new elements yeah, that are fun. Um, like, there's, uh, there's this rogue woman who, like, rides the table down occasionally yeah. and will, like, leap off and kill people just because that's in her nature. Yeah, she uh, has yeah. a motive, but we actually have no way of knowing if that mm. motive is accurate because she doesn't uh, actually I'll, talk to anybody. Oh, also, everybody, uh, here's another detail. Everybody is allowed to bring, like, one physical item with them yeah. into the, the hole, and yeah. he brings a copy of Don Quixote. Because he's like, oh, oh good. good, I can get some reading done. Yeah. And everyone else is like, I brought a knife. I brought a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I brought a baseball uh, bat. And, and, uh, I remember uh, in one scene, and it's just sort of in the background, you see that somebody brought a surfboard. <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> such an absurd a, a, detail. Little, little, little bizarre thing. I don't know like, why. I, I really love to surf. I, I need I my know. surfboard with me. Yes. Uh, there's, yeah, also, uh, when, like, things get really desperate, they, he and, uh, our hero and his cellmate, like, turn on each other, and then eventually they sort of start rotating through cellmates, mm-hmm. so we actually get some other people. At one point he meets a freedom fighter who's end up, and who's made a rope. Yeah. And is climbing up his, climbing up through the... Yeah, the, the he's trying to floors. he's trying to reach floor zero, thinking mm. maybe that'll that'll get him to safety or whatever. Mm. But problem is, in order to do that, he actually needs the help from whoever is above him, and everyone's in it for themselves. Yeah, nobody yeah. cares. So uh, again, it's not a subtle metaphor for how society <laughs> yeah. works. And when you look at the way that mm. in- wealth distribution, income distribution, and even literally food distribution mm. works, it's, there are people yeah, out there who have so much more than they'll ever need. And they're they don't not even think to redistribute it. Yeah. Well, then I it's this, and basically, I mean, you can look at this for you know mm. we talk about the one percent. Mm. You know, the one percent has the vast majority of all the money on the planet. They're not spending it all. Mm. If they spend it all, it would be injected back into the economy, and then more people would have more money to spend it all, and then more people would have more money, and therefore people would overall have better circumstances I, in I, general. I.e., uh, if if trickle down economics actually did that <laughs> yeah the idea of trickle down yeah. economics is that the rich people have a lot of money but then they spend it they invest it they make more businesses and therefore the money gets around problem rem- is there's so many bil- there are enough billionaires out there they, and they just have it they're hoarding all of the wealth yeah um, yeah so this movie is very pissed about that it, it's very pissed about that and it's it's actually a very smart metaphor it's a smart way of thinking about this yeah and, you know you it, could this is the sort of metaphor you might hear, like a pundit uh, ta- who is talking about wealth inequality mm-hmm. on some news program. Yeah. Sort of imagine a society is in a tower and everybody at the yeah. top. This is just a, a literal realization. Of Someday that. this will be on the recommended reading list in an economy, in an economics class at a community college yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. It's or, like, or, let me just give you the gist of this. Watch the platform. Yeah, and I'd say they show it in high schools, but there's actually some pretty nasty stuff in it. Oh, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's gross. Like, bad things happen yeah, there's, a there, lot. There's, there's a lot of violence and a lot of gore, and yeah. uh, children are put in peril, and there's 
on-screen pooping, which is not doesn't sit <laughs> not well sure with we me needed at that, all. But yeah. all right, but uh, uh, you know, here's my thing with this this movie is it's blunt, mm. and I admire it because I think they took a, a simple premise. Uh, and they found a way to stretch it out to feature length. It doesn't feel too padded. It's a little long. It could, probably could be twenty minutes shorter, but uh, maybe. But it's still pretty short. It's, it's still like pretty short. Four minutes or something. They, and... What they do is they come up with a very basic concept, and then they think about just the just the way that like okay, well, what's to keep people from hoarding the food and breaking the whole system? Okay, well, they'll kill you if you hoard the food. They think about all enough of the rules, enough of the of the uh, little details. That they are able to play with it a little bit, and like you can, you can deal with different permutations, different versions of each floor. Different uh, cellmates want to do different things, try to game the system. Mm-hmm. Um, that part is very well uh, uh, paced. It's very well developed, and I have to admire this film, if for nothing else, of like low budget, high concept sci fi. Yeah, because yeah, it's like a, a the Stuart 90... Gordon's Fortress. Yeah. Or, oh, well, um... Stuart Gordon's Fortress is actually really expensive compared to this. This oh, well, is more like Cube. Yeah, it was, Cube was another one. Yeah. Uh, but what I like about movies like like The Platform and like Cube uh, is they're really high concept and they're really fun to watch because when you're watching it, you begin projecting yourself into that scenario. What well, would I well, do? Well, if I were there, what would I do? And that actually uh, you know, inflames your imagination. I would climb up this, I would climb up. And if the film actually addresses what you were thinking about, then it's smart because it's yeah. like thinking, all, thinking through all of the steps that the audience has already thought through. Yeah. Uh, so the platform, I admire because it's quite clever. Yeah. Um, I like this a lot more than Snowpiercer. Uh, I think Snowpiercer <laughs> is... is uh, even more blunt and doesn't actually have that sense of cleverness. Like if I were part of this, I would do that. Mm. It's just Chris Evans, not playing, not a very interesting character, frankly, just sort of charging (laughs) his way up through. And, and this is the teaching car and this is, and look, they're all rich up front. Well, we knew that. So just seeing that doesn't really cement anything. Also, this movie's over two hours long. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) It's a a long train. Damn it. (laughs) Evidently. (laughs) Oh no, they're eating roaches. Okay. You know, it, it's less appetizing what they turn the roaches into than just Look, eating roaches. I, I love Bong Joon-ho. I think Bong Joon-ho mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the best filmmakers working today. Bong Joon-ho has big ideas and big concepts he wants to explore and big mm-hmm. themes he Especially wants to explore. Especially about uh, uh, well, financial inequality. Sure. Or economic inequality. But mm-hmm. um, sometimes, as in maybe Parasite is probably the ideal example. It's, mm-hmm. it's he's certainly one of his best films. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, he finds a story that very beautifully and excitingly explores his themes without just punching you with them. Mm. Parasite, you know, you're going to get what it's about, but the fact that people can take different things from it shows that the story is very neatly integrated into the themes. And depending on where your uh, uh, empathy lies, Mm. you might take different things away. I think that's one of the things that makes him be very, very strong is that there are a lot of different layers, a lot of different perspectives. But then he'll do something like Snowpiercer, which I like, but which is so blunt you can't possibly miss it. Or Okja, which I hate. <laughs> uh, maybe not hate is the wrong word, but I don't it's, think it's, works. Yeah. I think it's I think it's very blunt. I think the story doesn't really support the themes of the story very well. I think using a science fiction metaphor actually takes away a lot of the power of the real story of what happens. Yeah, with that our was food. just about someone actually just trying to protect their cow. It would have been a lot stronger. I think it, it would yeah. have actually. I think that movie. I think the movie is trying big things and yeah that one doesn't work it's a noble effort well, i think there's certainly a lot of a lot of pain taken to make that movie fascinating and different and i just don't think that one comes together 
the platform comes together, but it is it does come together in a very hit you over the head kind of way. Well, we uh, we've lived through Occupy Wall Street, and yeah. we're living through a time of increased authoritarianism around the world, and economic inequality is greater than it's ever been. Uh, the, you know, the poor down here, the poor down here, the middle class is a little, little bit a little higher. Up. The upper class is a little higher up, and then the upper one percent is all the way through. The, like, you can't even see the top. Like they're so they're on money. Jupiter. Yeah, yeah, like they're, it's they're that, much that, money. that much higher. Yeah. And um, there is a good sense of uh, not just outrage, but also a very palpable and uh, important sense of nihilism going on. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. during. Um, during like the Iraq War and the Bush administration, when a lot of really kind of hopeless films started showing up in mm. sort of like the horror and thriller genres, that's, yeah, you got a lot of torture movies because torture was part of like the the, the news well, cycle. Well, all of a sudden, comes and, to mind because I think that's the one Eli Roth film that I think is legitimately really great, at least of his horror movies. It, it's at least tapping into some sort of national anxiety. Well, it's it not just national anxiety. I think it's also talking about how. Uh, the way that the wealthy will find a way to dehumanize yeah. for their own and, uh, gain or, or even just mm. their own pleasure. But the, the movie know, was, it's, yeah. it's an angry film. The movie I was thinking of is actually a movie we did a commentary track for, which was called simply Buried. Oh, that's uh, a good and, idea. Uh, yeah. And it was it was Ryan Reynolds alone in a coffin. The entire film took place in a coffin. And it's very good. Uh, it's very good. Yeah, bleak, the fil- but film, it's very good. Filmmaker found a really good way of like making it seem visually dynamic while staying inside a coffin. And that's difficult to do. Yeah. And uh, but that film is about sort of trying. And he has a telephone as well, so he can mm. call people and try to get out and let people know where he is. Yeah. And uh, and the movie ends badly. I'll just. Say that yeah, uh, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not a happy film it's yeah you said it's very bleak and i feel like that film was very much a product of its time and i feel like the platform is as well yeah. we're not looking for uh, a cathartic happy ending because we see no happy ending from this mm-hmm. i feel like there's a lot of people in the world who are in a nihilistic mood and the platform is tapping into that in a, in a really uh, salient and very palpable way. Let me ask you a question. It's not hipster nihilism. No. This is this is an this actual is, well, I mean, impotent rage kind of well, film. Well, it's worth remembering that, you know, this is from Spain and Spain has a different political history mm. than America does and they, they actually did have uh, around World War II-ish the whole Franco regime. Yeah, the whole Franco and... regime. That was really brutal, and that's still really vivid in a lot of people's cultural memories. Now, watch uh, any of Guillermo del Toro's Spanish-language films. They're yeah. all about Franco. Especially <laughs> yeah. Pan's Labyrinth. Pa- yeah. well, no, well, especially The Devil's Backbone. Well, I think they're but, both yeah. there, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, those two. That's the, that's the main double feature, I think. Um, let me ask you a question, though. And without ruining it at all. Mm-hmm. Did the ending strike you as satisfying? Because a part of it, for me, felt like they're could have been more closure without ruining the enigma of the film. Well, I'm kind of... I'll just say that they did keep a good deal of the enigma intact, and I was satisfied with that. I liked that. Mm. Um, uh, Seeing what happened at the top and having some kind of... uh, some kind of action climax would not have been satisfying. True. Uh, I I, I generally agree with that. Yeah, it wasn't an action climax. Like, it it was actually sort of more a desperate climax with this little glimmer that something good might happen here. And when you're in a desperate situation, sometimes that's all you have. And I think that was a satisfying ending. Yeah, I kind of, I don't know. There's there's an element of the ending that I found not enigmatic, Mm -hmm. but slightly frustrating in its vagueness. Okay. Um... That I really couldn't go into any detail unless unless you see the film. But I think if you see it, I think you're going to find that this is a very stylish, very sharp, 
very intelligent sci-fi thriller mm-hmm. um, that yeah, I think your mileage might vary on the ending, mm-hmm. but I do highly recommend this one, and I do think this is a very, mm-hmm. very, very, very good uh, film for what it's trying to yeah, do. Like, are... it's trying to be small. It's trying to be claustrophobic. It's trying to be intimate while also being representational of much bigger ideas. Yeah, and, and, yeah, it's quite good. Uh, and to give credit to the director. Yes. Uh, his name is Galder Gathtelu Urutia. And I wow, pro- you I butchered that. No, Gathtelu Urutia. Okay. Gal- yeah, just... that's, that's how you pronounce it. Okay. Um, if If... if... We're off. We apologize. And, yeah, and it, yeah. And it is uh, from Castile because yeah. recognize the Castilian Spanish. Sure. Um, yeah, it's it's um, if enough people find this, it's going to have as much cloud as something like Cube. Yeah. Which you know it's a twenty year old film now, and people yeah. are still talking about this little Canadian thriller from nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, if you've never seen out. Cube, it's really good. It's about a group of people who wake up inside a giant cube, and on each wall of the cube, there's a door to. Another, another cube, cube. Yeah. and they don't know how many cubes there are, or yeah. how they got there. They what they do know is that every once in a while there'll be a cube with a death trap in it. Mm. So they're trying to walk around and trying to find an exit to this damn thing, while s- solving little clues and trying to in- kind of interrogating each other to find out why each of them are here. Maybe we're all here because it takes all of us to solve the puzzle. Because it turns out each of them has, like, some sort of hidden talent. And mm, or skill one, one, one or something. Them, one of them might have been a designer on it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Watch watch Cube. It's really quite it's, good. It's really good. Um, I, I didn't see Cube Zero, but Cube 2 Hypercube is... Um, Isn't that, like, holograms and holograms No, and the idea is that or... a Hypercube is, like, sort of a theoretical shape. Okay. So the idea is that if they're in a Hypercube, instead of just moving around... Uh, in space, they might actually be able to move around in time, and each cube is it's like <laughs> okay. in a different timeline, or time moves at a different speed in each cube. Okay, so they like leave somebody behind for ten seconds, and they come back, and they're a desiccated yeah. corpse. Okay. Yeah, which is kind of neat. But at that point, we've we've gone from highly implausible to kind of dumb. <laughs> like, I mean, cube wh- is not plausible, but at least you can suspend your disbelief. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, but yeah, cube cube is a really really great example of how ingenuity and good writing. Mm-hmm. can make even, like, the lowest budget just seem like a wonder. Yeah, and I think Platform yeah. is another good example of that. What do you want to talk about next? Uh, let's talk about Big Time Adolescence, because yeah. I actually like this movie a lot. Um, Big Time Adolescence is a film by Jason Orley. Uh, it is a film about... It takes place... starts in the uh, mid-2010s. It's kind of weird that... We've reached the point where 2012 <laughs> is the setting. Is the, it's been long and en- long enough that that can be setting for a flashback. But yeah, yeah that, just, can, that can be nostalgia. Yeah, I'm, I'm just an old man now, and it's about a young boy who's about 12, mm-hmm. who uh, is very enamored of his older sister's boyfriend. Yeah, he's very he's very charming. He's a little bit of a criminal. Yeah. He like gives the kid like a Playboy magazine and mm. you know gives him beer and takes him to parties and makes him feel like an older kid. Yeah, it makes him feel like he's yeah. just another one of the guys. He's, yeah. uh, that k- older character Zeke is played by Pete Davidson from SNL Saturday Night Live, mm. uh, and Pete Davidson and, and he's, he's great. He's good. His whole vibe mm. is really laid back and chill and maybe a little irresponsible, but. The whole point is, like, you kind of just feel like you want to hang around him. He's, he's cool. <clears throat> yeah, he's a... Just, he's, yeah. It, it's weird that the slacker generation is basically over, because he would have fit in perfectly <laughs> in the early 90s. Like, yeah. he would have had his own movies. He would have been, like, a big, big star in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. That's totally the vibe people yeah. wanted to go with. Like, the Polly Shores, yeah. the Wayne's Worlds, that whole vibe. Pete Davidson is all over that. This movie, and I actually really respect Pete Davidson for this, because... 
he has not starred in a lot of movies. He's not even been in a lot of feature films, at least in a prominent role. This is like his mm-hmm. first big, big, big role in a movie. Like it's all revolves around him and. Well, it revolves around the lead character. Well, yeah, but it's a two-hander. Yeah. It's a two-hander. They're both arguably leads. I feel like Pete Davidson in this in this movie, and specifically uh, writer-director Jason Orley, mm-hmm. uh, are very eager to deconstruct that whole slacker vibe. And well, unromanticize yeah. it and show that, yeah, okay, look, a 12-year-old's going to look up to this and think of... There's a point in the movie where the kid's talking about, yeah, and Zeke would, like, let me have my first taste of beer and let me watch R-rated movies. And he showed me a naked girl on his phone once. You know, adult stuff. That's not actually adult stuff. That's just that's stuff just, older people get o- to do. It's just older adolescent stuff is what it is. Exactly. Man. So if you're really, really young, Zeke seems like a really, mm. really cool adult. But the older you get, the more you realize Zeke is inherently pathetic and in a state mm. of complete arrested development. To, to the point where, you know, you realize that he's early on that he's uh, kind of a burnout already. Oh, totally a burnout. Uh, early on, it's like, okay, we see why he's really alluring and really charming. And I don't know if you ever had anybody like that in your life, mm. but I think a lot of people do. Sure. A lot of, especially young men, There's like old, slightly older guys mm. who sort of come into their circle and not necessarily take them under their wing, but bring in a younger kid kind of as a mascot for I, their older group of friends. My experience with that and mm. at least and, and the people I knew is mostly there's a lot of a lot of older brothers. Yeah. Like you're significantly like, like 5 or 6 years older than me. You you have and an older brother. I do have an older brother. He's significantly he's like 7 years older than me. Mm. And uh, yeah, by the time I was like in junior high, he was out the door. Mm. But there was that period in elementary school where my brother was going to heavy metal concerts and playing Dungeons and Dragons and he was a total ni- late 1980s cliche in a lot of ways. Um, but whenever he let me tag along to anything even remotely like that, mm. even if it was something as simple as, hey, we're going to the hobby store to buy a bunch of like Warhammer figures, mm. that seemed like the coolest thing in the world. I get to do this really cool stuff with my yeah, older yeah. brother. Um, I, but I, in actuality, I, we didn't actually do anything really deep or meaningful, and I was just sort of got to be privy to stuff you get to do when you're a teenager. Yeah, and that's not well, it, the I, same kind of thing. I have an older sister, and yeah. I remember one of her boyfriends. This very similar to what's going on in, okay. in Big Time Adolescence. Uh, he wasn't like... I didn't hang out with him a lot, but when I did, he was a pretty cool guy. He let me yeah. play Rygar on the NES, which ah, I didn't have. He had ooh. like a lot of Iron Maiden posters on his walls, yeah. with have, which have Evil, Evil Eddie. Um, yeah, I had a lot... Of, I had my brother's hand-me-down Iron Maiden shirts as well. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the imagery from... I, like, I, I wasn't into Iron Maiden, but like the posters were really cool to me. So he seemed like a pretty cool dude. And I, I remember... hanging out with him. I felt more mature hanging out with this guy. I remember my brother used to play... like We used to have a couple of heavy metal stations in mm-hmm. L.A back when metal was like the the main mm. like rock and roll uh it was like he was either like progressive or new wave or metal yeah. my brother was really into metal so he was constantly listening to knac or pirate radio here so in la pirate radio coolest damn radio station pirate radio was of, badass of, of my youth i respected uh, pirate radio because knac was just playing y- you know just a little bit more re- main. well here knac was, was playing, playing metallica no, knac and... was playing poison mm. and pirate radio was playing like metallica b-sides like okay. they, they were yeah, that's what that's what it is they're, they're, yeah pirate radio was cooler mm. but uh, i remember when my brother left and he joined the marines and all of a sudden and he was playing heavy metal all the time and he could hear it like he would close his door but you could still hear it mm. so I listened to heavy metal too because I had no choice right it's just what I had and when he left I was like oh wait what do I listen to mm. 
I have no idea. <laughs> I never had a taste of my own. I get to formulate my own taste. Took me a long ass time to find the talking heads, but boom, I found my jam. <laughs> I found it. That's that's my jam right there. It's weird because they were right there with all of the new waves. I know, but I wasn't allowed to listen to it because my parents mm. like they listened, they were listening to old country or the Beatles, and my brother was listening to heavy metal. And basically, occasionally, I would catch like some new wave or prog rock on like um, on an MTV, mm. but I wasn't allowed to. To just listen to a whole cassette right, right, right. of something. So, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, similar. similar. I, yeah. I, I, th- I think Big Ten Adolescence understands that experience. I think it understands is, that... It's, it's very specific, but it's one I can relate to. I think it understands that when you're young and you look up to somebody like that, they kind of become your whole world. Their worldview becomes something you want to emulate. Their pastimes become something you want to do. And it's easy to get locked into that and not realize it is your responsibility as an individual. Mm-hmm. To grow past that and find your own damn thing. But uh, the lead of this, a, a young boy named Mo, uh, played by Griffin Gluck. Gr- Griffin Gluck, uh, who he's too young to realize this sort of thing. And this, the film is about sort of that slow, uh, years-long process of discovery mm. about the true character of Zeke, and hence, like what he what he is taking as a bad influence. It's yeah. sort of like uh, realizing that he has a bad influence in his life. Yeah. His, like, his parents are telling him that this kid's a bad influence and you're not allowed to see him, but of course he's not listening to his parents. Yeah. His dad is played by the awesome John Cryer. He's who really gives good a at really this. good performance. He's really in genuine in this. I like him because Zeke is the kind of player uh, character John Cryer could have played in the 80s. Yeah. So seeing John Cryer, and he only has a couple of scenes with Pete Davidson, but seeing him with Pete Davidson is just kind of perfect mm-hmm. because you realize that John Cryer, John Cryer does hate Zeke. But he, he understands that who exactly who Zeke yeah, is. Zeke is a bad More, influence. Better than Zeke does. He doesn't like tell his son like outright at the beginning not to see Zeke. He, is, he trusts his son and knows that his son won't do anything stupid mm-hmm. and that eventually his son will outgrow this guy. But what he discovers is that he's going to outgrow him too late and that he's actually going to make some really bad choices over the course of this film. In particular, uh, there's a bit where... A kid at school is trying to get in with the cool kids and go to one of the cool kids' parties. Mm-hmm. And he knows that Mo, his best friend, is a young adult. He's like in his 20s. Mm-hmm. So he's like, that guy can buy us beer and then we'll become the cool kids who brought beer to the party. And Zeke yeah. is like, yeah, okay. I don't give a shit. I'm going to take a gonna take a bit off the top and buy myself an album or whatever like that from a local record store. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll, we'll get the beer and I'll be fine. Okay. but It's, it's 2012. I know. Gonna go to a record store. In I know. I know. Well, it's it's considered. It should have, peach. Been, it should have been set in like 1993. I you know? agree, but it's consi- he it, it's treated like a kitsch thing that they do. Mm-hmm. Like they get a they get an album ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happens is we're gonna take uh, uh, booze to the party, but and that'll make it cool. But you know, what make it really cool is if you bring drugs, weed to the party. Yeah, and if you bring drugs, you can sell it. And mm-hmm. because they're a bunch of teenagers and they can't get it legally, we can sell it at a huge markup. And then we can just share uh, share the profits. Mm-hmm. And then you become really cool. And Mo is taking this as, okay, this is just a quick way for me to be cool. It's harmless. They're going to be doing drugs, you know, smoking weed and, and drinking booze why, anyway. Why, so why, why, how, why not I, me? I guess I get to be that guy. I've always yeah. kind of wanted to be that guy. So, yeah. So he becomes popular and he's, you know, he's got a little extra money on hand. And what happens is there are more parties and people want more booze and drugs. And he's just becomes... Essentially, the, the drug... Yeah, drug uh, pipsqueak. I really, for Zeke. I really love the way that this. There, there's a line in um, the Neil Gaiman Terry Pratchett novel Good Omens, mm-hmm. where they're describing uh, the demon Crowley, 
uh, who uh, was the snake in the Garden of Eden. He was played by Andy Tennant in the miniseries, which I still haven't seen, actually. David Tennant. Sorry. That, Andy Tennant's a director. David yeah. Tennant is the actor. My bad. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, he's played by David Tennant in the movie. And But when they're introducing the characters, they, they describe Crowley in the book as a demon who did not so much fall from grace as saunter slowly downwards. Mm. And I, that's I've kind always of, loved that description. It's a great yeah. line. And that's kind of what happens to Mo. And I actually really admire how this movie treats temptation. Because temptation usually isn't a one-time thing. Yeah, like, oh, I could steal that cupcake. It's not like in, in like a Larry Clark movie yeah. where everybody's kind of morally bankrupt anyway. Yeah, it's just And it's like, things. okay, and now I'm going to kill this guy with a skateboard. No, you know, it's, it's, it's little decisions yeah. that seem like an okay idea at a time. They seem like, you know, like... Not a big deal, but the more you get comfortable with them, the more you do them. Mm. And all of a sudden, these little sins, these little bits of gluttony, these little bits of greed, just escalate until that becomes your identity. Yeah. And, and that's a really, really, as a moral film, I actually really respect Big Time Adolescence. I, I respect that moral journey of Mo. I also mm. respect the moral journey of all the characters, because it takes place over the course of several years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get to see sort of Mo come to the slow realization that he's all... Maybe a little bit too far gone at one point. Yeah, that he's become an at-risk youth without even really intending to. Yeah, which I think is the way a lot of this happens. It is just sort of a series of really small bad decisions, as opposed to like yeah. one really bad one. Uh, and we get to see all of the other characters. We get to see the sister grow up and get a new boyfriend mm-hmm. and kind of clean up her life a little bit. Yeah, we get to see the parents kind of grow and see what's happening with their son and, and try to stop it and see how yeah. they kind of and they and then, you can and see John Cryer and he's like, I kind of failed as a dad, and but I'm trying to cl- close the grip a little bit, but yeah. and now I can't, and now I really have to lay it on the law at this point. He came home with a tattoo. That's not cool, guy. Oh, well, especially yeah. and he even says, I think they're Jewish, and he's just like, that's a yeah. real big no no. Yeah, well, like, he even says, yeah, well, but, you, you can't be buried with have, the rest of have us. Have fun not being buried with us is his line of dialogue uh and when we turn back to zeke he's always right in the same spot yeah and he's responding to people exactly like he goes to the the uh, older sister at one point and like he's trying to get back with her but he's using the exact same lines and the exact same kind of charms yeah even though he's now like looks a little bit more like a wasteoid. Like, she's like lapped she, him. Like, there was a time yeah, yeah. when they were more or less at the same level, and mm. now... And there was a couple of times we see that she even slept with him, like, after they broke up. Mm. But that was her, like, getting it out of her system, and now she just, like, wants this guy to stay away from her brother because he's not good for him. Yeah. yeah. There's a real danger this movie could have fallen into where it could have just felt like a scare movie. Like, yeah, there, like a, there's like a, a JD kind of there's film, a reefer yeah. madness kind of like Zeke yeah. is these this uh, evil well, kid who's going to correct you. Did, and we've all hmm. seen shit like that. Do you ever see Catherine Hardwick's Thirteen? Yes. Yeah. That Thirteen is <laughs> Thirteen oversells itself a lot. I actually still like that movie, but well, I, I admire it's it for, heavy-handed for a film. Well, it was written by a thirteen-year-old, yeah. and it was about sort of bad experiences she had. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a weirdly racist movie if you go back and look at it. It, it treats is, yeah. the, the black characters very badly. Yeah. Uh, but that that is very clear, even though it's very skillfully directed, and I think Catherine yeah. Hardwick gives it a kind of raw immediacy, you can describe that as a JD film. Sure. Uh, Big Time Adolescence, I think, is a lot more graceful and knowing than something like 13. I agree. My problem with, Jay, with Big Time Adolescence, and I think it's, it's, it's reasonably well told, it's very well acted across the board. Mm. I think everyone's really good in that. Is that for all of the that subtlety and nuance that you get out of it, ultimately all I'm left with at the end of the movie is mm-hmm. that 
Zeke was a burnout and the kid shouldn't have hung out with him. Like, I feel yeah. like in the end, it's well, more, I feel like at the end, uh-huh. it's more simple than the actual presentation allowed. And that's not terrible, but I, I still feel like a little bit like it was, you know, just kind of like a fanciful, would have put a little bit extra frosting on a familiar I tale. I don't know. I think you're selling it a little short. I yeah. think uh, this film does an excellent job at depicting Zeke as a very alluring figure. Yeah. And we understand why someone like Mo would want to hang out with Zeke. And we understand that he actually is kind of a cool, charming guy. He's True. a wasteoid. He's burned out. We as adults can recognize that pretty early on. But we can also recognize that this is somebody we want to spend time with. And I think uh, the performances are so strong. Yeah. Not just by Zeke, but by the entire cast. That we understand why everybody is continuing on the paths they are. I agree with that, and I like that. But I just feel like what it, <laughs> what it boiled down to me when it all was said and done, and when mm-hmm. I think back, and I saw this movie like two weeks ago now. When I think back on this movie, mm-hmm. here's what I think about. I think about the performances are really, really good. I appreciate the moral quandary at the heart of it. But at the, when all is said and done, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the movie, it's clear that Zeke was a bad influence. Yeah, and at the very end of the movie, it's clear that Zeke was a bad influence. Exactly, and there's a certain and there's a certain amount of just <laughs> ultra simplicity to that that I feel like as much nuance as we get from the characters, the overall sort of moral tale of it, even though it never really hits you on the head with it, it it's not much more refined than that. It seems like mm-hmm. it's just basically we have a very simple moral lesson: stay away from this kind of person. And uh, we're going to show you how it would well, really happen, it's also, but it's just kind of an after-school special done really well. I, I think, though, that this film is very much about expectations, about growing up. The, the older sister, she understands that she needs to grow and change. Uh, Mo realizes that he also needs to grow and change, but he's kind of... He has this albatross around his neck, essentially. Yeah. The one type of rare character who is resolutely decided not to grow or change. Mm-hmm. Um there is a really dark version of this directed by Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. about this sort of the grandness of the the wicked American soul, you know, the, right. the, the grand American man, the great man in American history who is just sort of not moving and not actually contributing, but leaking evils into American well, I society. Also, I also uh, feel like, you know, this this whole I mean, we talked about how. Pete Davidson's whole basic comic persona, but even specifically his character in this movie, would feel very at home in sort of the 90s indie scene. Like, there's an mm. early Richard Linklater movie that plays a lot oh, like yeah, this, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Like, th- an alternate reality Richard Linklater what, what, basically made this one movie. One of the segments in Slacker is yeah. this story. Basically, yeah. And so I, I just feel like there's a part of me that's just sort of... I've seen it, but it's good. Yeah, it's really no. It's so really I think you liked good. it more than me, but yeah. I just I think in the end it, it it didn't hit me super hard. Okay, but I do respect it, and I do think it's very good. And I think if you find Pete Davidson funny, I respect that right out of the gate. Well, this is the kind of time when most SNL performers would be like solidifying their comic persona mm-hmm. and trying to come up with something that they could repackage and like, okay, well, what if Will Ferrell teaches soccer? Or what if Will Ferrell goes back to college and joins a frat? Or what if Will Ferrell is, is an anchorman? Skater, yeah, like basically there's a lot of SNL comedians, these broad comedians. It's, it's who, the, the groundling school of, yeah. of comedy. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I respect Pete Davidson for right out of the gate, his first like quote unquote star vehicle, not that it's like a big release, is deconstructing his persona and saying that he's charming, he's likable, he's also very toxic. And yeah. I hope that this means that Pete Davidson is interested in breaking beyond that. 
So that would be very exciting. Uh, Mm -hmm. While we're on topic of adolescent movies, let's just move straight on to the Disney Plus film Stargirl. I didn't see this one, so tell me about Stargirl. All right. uh, Stargirl is a new film from director Julia Hart, who did Fast Color, which I missed. And I'm told it was really, really good. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it then. I really liked Fast Color. Um, Fast Color is like a really soulful uh, indie with punk rock sensibilities. Yeah. film about which is essentially x-men origin storm yeah <laughs> and uh it's based on a book uh by jerry spinelli who is perhaps best known for writing maniac mcgee all right which was uh a, a, when i was growing up it was considered a bit of a classic i don't know if it's still widely read mm. but maniac mcgee was basically the story of this boy of urban legend <laughs> uh where everyone knew him he never he never lost a foot race uh, he there was a knot that no one had ever untangled, and he untangled that sucker. <laughs> the like, Gordian knot. Yeah, so it's just this runaway kid who is just the subject of a lot of larger than life stories. Mm. And Star Girl is kind of similar to that, and that's a story of a young girl who is not like anyone else at her school. She doesn't dress like anyone else at her school. She plays the ukulele. Um, she just how, does how quirky. She's listen. I'm going to say this right flat out. She's a manic pixie dream girl, and the reason she's a manic pixie dream girl is that she's not the star of her own story. Oh, she has to like help some shrinking violet man out of his his rut. Yeah. No, I I was just no. That's that's the movie. Tell me the real story. No, that's the movie. It's very frustrating because the young cast is very very good, and there's a lot of things I like about this movie, but. Our our protagonist should not be this guy, Leo, played by Graham Verscher. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though that kid is fine, he's kind of a nothing character. Mm-hmm. He's a kid who moved to a new town after his dad died. And his dad, after he died, like the thing he left behind that really symbolized his dad for him mm-hmm. was this necktie with a porcupine on it. So he was wearing the necktie, and then he goes to a new school, and they chop off the porcupine, and he never wore the porcupine necktie again, and he always wanted to fit in. And then this new girl comes to school when he's in high school, and she shows up, and she's wearing, like, white overalls and a rainbow t-shirt, and she's carrying around a ukulele, and her name, her first name, is Stargirl. Yeah, that 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 noise. You're, you're describing a movie. I it's it's the kind of movie where like he's gonna like not doesn't know how to talk to her and he kind of mm. stalks her around the neighborhood and no one talks about how creepy that is. And then when he finally talks to her, they go for a walk in the desert because it's like in New Mexico or Arizona, some mm. you know desert state. And so, uh, but but they go on a walk wow. and along, on that walk, she talks to him about how hey, we should just scream for no reason. That'll make the universe know us. And then like hey, let's just sit here and try to think about nothing. Maybe if we we think about nothing oh, no, will become one with things and then she's like and then like yeah i just think about anything you know i just i erase hold on i erase myself with an eraser and then i just become one with everything i become one with the rock mm. i become one with the rain and then it starts raining and you're like oh my god is she played by Elle fanning she's played by right. grace vanderwall oh uh, who that is name is familiar she uh she is a musician and she's actually oh, okay. a professional ukulele player and she's very young oh, okay. and she's very talented and she's kind of playing herself about it I, I don't know her right. but like they clearly they lean into the fact that she can play the ukulele there's a bit where she's going to this high school where no one at this high school has ever won an award they have an, they have like an awards cabinet with no awards in it at all. Now, they didn't even, like, come up with, like, some bullshit, like, you showed up award. Like, no, they have nothing. The football team has literally never won a game ever. Okay. 
And then one day during a football game, you know, the cheerleaders are like bored and can't barely can barely bring up to do anything. Raw, well, yeah. She shows up and like just jumps in, even though she's not part of anything, and just in a ukulele sings a song about school spirit, which I will give the movie this is a good song. It's well, catchy. If, she, if she's a professional musician, yeah. maybe she wrote that. I hope so. Like it's it's catchy. Oh, she yeah, uh, she performed it, and it looks like she didn't write uh, "Be True to Your School." All right, uh, but whoever you know, "Be True to Your School" is a catchy, fun song. Mm. It's a good school spirit song. I like it. There's a bit later on where, like, at first she just sings it to the crowd, and the crowd goes, "Oh, that's kind of nice." And then for the first time, like the whole season, the team scores a touchdown, so they think she's their good luck charm. So she joins the cheerleading club and they start like doing cheers around her songs. And so later in the film, she performs that same song. But now there's actually this really elaborate routine that it turns out was choreographed by Mandy Moore. Oh, that, like, okay. Yeah, that's actually just in a vacuum. Not, that's a good music video. Not within the context of the film. No, no, like, like, they hired Mandy Moore. They hired but, Mandy Moore to choreograph. It. All right, like they actually hired the real Mandy Moore. According to, to the okay. credits. And right. like I'm watching it and I'm like, you know what? That's that's a good bit in a vacuum. I, I like the young actors here. There's a lot I like in this movie. I think we've made this mix up before. I think Mandy Moore, the singer and actress, oh, no. is a different Mandy Moore than the choreographer. No, I, that would be disappointing. I don't know that. Well, listen, I'm going to try to look that up right now. Yeah, Man- um, Mandy Moore, the choreographer, is not the same Mandy Moore. That but Mandy Moore has him. done choreography. That's like a little she, confusing, she, she's, right? she's like stun singing and dancing, right? I'm not crazy. Hasn't she done that? Isn't that a thing no, Mandy Moore has done? The, the Man- Mandy Moore, the choreographer, is like known for, she like choreographs the dances on So You Think You Can Dance. And that's a different person than Mandy Moore, the singer and actress. Well, that's <laughs> weird. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's, I, I remember this because I remember seeing Mandy Moore's name on, on a dance film before and making that same mistake. Okay, you know what? You are right. You okay. are right. That's 100% right. I, that's weird. It's a weird. It's that's weird. weird. It's, it's to- very totally, specific. It's she, got totally. some, she got her own card in the credits, so I thought they were bragging about getting Mandy Moore. Okay. All right. Well, I, was I mean, they were bragging about getting Mandy Moore. You know what I mean. a very experienced choreographer. But you know what I mean. Yeah. I was, it was a different kind of brag. Yeah. So, like, I, my apologies. I was wrong. I'm going to leave that in the podcast. Okay. Because <laughs> everybody's fallible. But anyway, that's a nice bit. Mm. That whole bit's nice. And to the movie's credit, like, there's a bit at the middle where she, like, does something that people in the school liked. And you learn that some of the, like, random acts of kindness that she did actually had negative consequences. And she feels really bad about them. And she has this crisis of, of spirit where she starts acting kind of normal and it's kind of sad. But all the time, it's always filtered through this dude. Hmm. And this dude, it's not that interesting. He's not. She's interesting. I want to know all about her. I want to know who she's like. We see little bits of her and her mom, but not a lot. Mm. Like, to their movie's credit, they don't go into weird maudlin territory where it turns out she's only quirky because she only has a year to live or some bullshit. (laughs) Like, I kept expecting it to go there. It doesn't. Mm. But, yeah, it's basically just, it's frustrating because I was a big fan of Maniac McGee. And Maniac McGee has its problems, too. But it's about... The person who is the source of all these urban legends. And by the end of the movie, this girl, Stargirl, becomes kind of like this urban legend in the school. And the really cool things that she actually did do get sort of built up a bit. And some mm-hmm. people say that she could, like, whip a flower out from out of nowhere at any time. And she never did that. And stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm like, but why can't we see it from her perspective? Why do we have to see it from just this guy? Why is her incredible personality and talent and journey only interesting because it makes this guy intrigued 
I don't it's, care about that guy. It's not like the odd life of Timothy Green where no, he touches where everybody's the, lives. Yeah. First of all, and that has the advantage of being like completely fucking bonkers. Can we can, you, uh, can we talk about Diane Weist's amazing line? <laughs> okay, we can pause briefly for one one of the greatest lines in, in cinema history. Yeah. Um, Academy Award winner Diane Weist, Diane two Weist. time Academy Award winner Diane, Diane Weist is in The Odd Life of Timothy Green. The premise of the movie is a couple who cannot have children decide to get drunk one evening and just sort of dream up whatever their dream child would have been, and just drinking and thinking up all these bizarre things. Uh, they've they like through, bury a thing yeah, in the they, yard, they, don't they? Yeah, they've gone through this weird ritual where they're burying something in the yard to sort of mourn the fact they, that they'll never have children. They and make up, a homunculi. They, yeah, they they make a child who grows up out of the ground and he has like leaves growing out of his legs and he is the exact child they dreamed up. He's perfect. And he's this perfect quirky little kid who uh-huh. just knows everything and is really talented but in weird sort of ways. It, it's such a stupid-ass movie. It's, um, <laughs> it's a really bad, bad movie. Uh, but... Uh, the, 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 the town the, is the town's economics is run by the local pencil factory, and yeah. the pencil factory is in dire straits. Yeah, because everyone's using pens. Yeah, everybody's moving to pens. Gosh, <laughs> what a horror! They, the pencil factory is I'm about like, to go dude, out of business. People still have to take SATs. What are you doing? And they, and they can't like. There's like a, a crisis of like the materials they need to make the pens. And Timothy Green comes up with this wonderful idea. You could make pencils. Out of leaves. Not the wood, but the leaves on the trees. Yeah, because the leaves will grow back real, real fast. Mm. And everyone's like, no. No. Surely, surely not. Surely not. No. And, and everybody says, where did you get this idea? It was Timothy Green, this weird little child. Kill him! Out. Yeah, they essentially like <laughs> lynch him and they pull him up on a table. It's like, we're going to murder this child. I He's feel like, like we might be exaggerating this uh, slightly. Well, maybe a little bit. But, <laughs> and then he whips off his socks and says, but I have leaves on my legs. And Diane Weist silences the crowd. Shh, everyone is silent. She very quietly, probably with a switch behind her back. <laughs> that doesn't happen in the movie. It goes up to Timothy Green, l- looks at the leaves on his legs and kind of pulls on them. Sure enough, they're growing out of his legs and then turns to the audience in this big dramatic moment says, well, if this boy can grow leaves on his legs, we can make pencils out of leaves. And everyone erupts Yay! cheering. <laughs> what the fuck just happened? It's one of the weirdest movies Disney has ever made. <laughs> and they made... Condor Man. They they made some yeah. weird, terrible shit. The Odd Life of mm. Timothy Green, one of the oddest. Yeah. To be fair, well titled. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair, fair. Right. Um, what you're describing, I feel like, is a film that was. We can't do the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing anymore. Because we shouldn't. We shouldn't. It's but tacky I, and dehumanizing, it, if you ask me. It's basically I, just like, that, you only exist to make this white dude's life better. I, I think it was kind of deconstructed by the movie Paper Towns uh, from 2015. Exactly. Uh, Paper, Ta- yeah, Paper Towns is a really uh, terrific film about a, a young man. He's played by Nat Wolf. Nat Wolf. Uh, I got that right. Uh, and... <laughs> And he's and he there's a there's yeah, a girl yeah, in his neighborhood a, who he's a, in love with played yeah, by Cara Delevingne. Cara Delevingne. They've been childhood friends, and she's been like his dream girl for all his life. And it turns out she is this kind of wild type. And they have this one wild night, and the first act of the movie is taken up by this one wild night where she's trying to avenge all of the wrong the people who have wronged her, and that she's like sneaking to houses yeah. and stealing stuff. And he thinks like, this is all really really cool. And she says, "Yeah, now we've we've connected, we've done this thing together." And then she vanishes. It's like, okay, now my manic pixie dream girl is vanished. I need to go out of town and find her and then solve the. Mystery. And while he's solving that mystery, he realizes, wait a minute, she was a horrible person. And my friends, yeah. I'm actually having a much deeper connection with because I'm spending time with them and conversing mm. with them yeah. and connecting with them on sort of a human level. They're not these sort of weird, insane people who are given to impulsivity. Yeah. And when he finally finds 
spoil a little, a little bit of a spoiler. No, listen, if, if, if you're interested in the movie, skip yeah. ahead 30 seconds. But yeah. When he finds Cara Delevingne, uh, it turns out she wasn't the romantic figure that he always thought she was. No, she in was fact, she, she shuts him down pretty hard yeah. and said, hey, listen, I was going through a time. I'm sorry this hit you so hard, but mm-hmm. I'm a person. And I'm growing, and you should grow too. Yeah, so. And I find that I was I'm I'm glad you brought this up because that's a movie that starts out so Elizabeth Town, like so mm, Garden quirky, State, yeah, yeah, you know, just so like oh, his life's going to be improved by his proximity to this cool person mm-hmm. who is only cool because it breaks him out of a rut and doesn't actually stem from real character. Mm. And I hate that trope. Usually, yeah. I'm not saying it's never been done well, but typically speaking, I hate that trope because it turns one of the lead characters in your story into a plot device, mm-hmm. and that's selling them short, selling your movie short, and selling your audience short. Um, but uh, yeah, Paper Towns first half hour of Paper Towns. I'm like, I hate this fucking movie. Yeah, I yeah, hate yeah. it because this is everything that I hate mm-hmm. done unironically. And, and then it and turns I, out the I movie think, was actually about that, and I actually mm-hmm. respected it. it. It backed off and yeah, yeah. turned turned into yeah. this thing. It's like yeah. about it, how it, this person is actually not good for you. Everything yeah. I was taking away from that first act, I was supposed to. And no. I actually, like, you know what? <laughs> well played. Well, well played, Paper Towns. Stargirl toys with that mm. during this like mid-film crisis where she goes through uh, her own you know identity crisis and decides to change mm. who she is, but... It's still never her story, and the movie still ultimately, you know, ends with her doing more crazy stuff at a dance and then vanishing and becoming a character of legend. And I'm not saying it's awful. It's like it's too well acted for that, and there's some nice bits, mm-hmm. like, here or there. And, well, um, and there's also a way to tell that story about sure. this sort of weird legendary character that would show up at your school. Yeah, and I just, I've read I just, a lot of young adult novels yeah, that have that, stru- that structure. Exactly. But th- the trick is to find the right in. And I don't think telling the story from Leo's perspective was the way. And maybe I'm sure that's probably how it is in the book. Mm. But I would adapt the shit out of that and make yeah. it more about her than it is about him. Or at the very least equal. Uh-huh. Uh, because Grace Vanderwall, very charming, very likable oh. actor. She's very, she takes this mm. larger than life character and makes it pretty genuine. Uh, but it's still always seen through this veil of fantasy. Mm. And yeah, I've, I found myself just rolling my eyes at parts of it. And the parts of it I liked were undermined a bit by the parts I rolled my eyes at. So mm. there are going to be kids who see this movie who are n- not tired of the Manic Pacey Dream Girl trope. Um, and maybe the well, introduction to it. Cer- yeah, when you're a certain age, that kind of character is still very alluring. Yeah. Big, big time adolescence is about this as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, but like, yeah, I don't know. I look at this as like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but it's told from the perspective of Cameron. You know, like <laughs> that's that's kind of what this is. Like, it's interesting because it's from Ferris's perspective. It was told from Cameron. There'd just be this cool guy, and we're like, why aren't we spending more time with that guy? Yeah, Cameron's a great supporting here, character. Leo could be a great supporting yeah. character. Why isn't it about Stargirl? I can't think of a reason. So you can either have a movie where she's the main character and yeah. she's like Ferris Buellering, like talking to the camera and sort of revealing that yeah. she's sort of out of time and out of sync with the rest. Or of you could have people. like an, or you can have an omniscient narrator or something. Or he can still yeah. narrate it, but maybe or, just be, he'd know more about her. He can be narrating. It can be about him. It can be a story. But we need to see his life a lot. Do we see him at home? We do. do we see, okay, we do see and, his life a lot. To be fair, and then, like, you, it's not and like, then you shoot her from only from his perspective in that she like 
she, so she seems kind of magic and ethereal in a way yeah. where she's almost like semi-supernatural. They, so she, they like, toy with that. So but she, that's... she actually doesn't interact like lead cheers at the school or like if she does. She was like, maybe she's see... a figment of his imagination. Yeah, like like he, that kind he of, sees yeah. her from the back. Like he, he doesn't interact with her that much. I, 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 I see where you're coming from here. I don't think that approach would work very well either. Okay. But well, um, I, I didn't see the movie. No, so no, it's fine. Um, yeah, this is, this is nowhere near like the worst kids movie or anything like that. And I wouldn't say like, don't show it to your kids or anything mm. like that, but it's not particularly good. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then lastly, uh, there is a new film on Amazon Prime uh, called Blow the Man Down. Mm. There's so much I love about this movie. <laughs> there's so much I love about this movie, and there's a lot that really annoys me about this movie. Yeah, I'm so frustrated. We'll, we'll it comes it. so close to being it's, legit it's, yeah. four star grade. It's it's like it, it's. It's like going up to Fargo's door, knocking, and then running away. Um, it's because it, it has that kind of Coen Brothers vibe to it. Yeah. Um, uh, but no dudes. It's all about women, and yeah. it's made by women. It's directed by uh, Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Crudy. Uh, it was written by them as well. And uh, it's about a small fishing village out in Massachusetts and New England. And we get, actually start with the sea shanty. Um, blow, blow, blow the man down. Blow the man down. But it's but it's sung on camera mm. by a bunch of fishermen just standing there on the rocks singing at us, and it's yeah, actually, it, it's like they're a Greek chorus, yeah. and it's great. And I kind of want to listen to the soundtrack of this because they really make all those sea chanties yeah. feel very vital, and they bring mm. out the meaning of all of them. Yeah. And every once in a while, there'll be like this huge plot point, someone will die or whatever like that, and yeah, just, just pans to the right, and then those guys are singing again, and mm. it's so great. If you ain't into fishing, you're in the wrong place. Uh, which is, that lyric is actually vital because uh, yeah. it's about a pair of sisters. Their names are Mary Beth and Priscilla. Their mother has just died. They hate this town. Yeah. And uh, their mother has died and essentially uh, left them with, their only choice to survive is to sell the house. Yeah, they have like yeah. a bait shop. And, yeah, uh, and, the, and, the and business They have a well, bait yeah. shop, but the house is like under, under foreclosure. They've got a lot of debt. You know, mm-hmm. the funerals are expensive, which is fundamentally absurd to me. But, um... And uh, yeah, so they're in, they're in dire straits. The older sister is kind of a grin and bear it type. You know, she's like, I'm going to take the responsibility for everything. Mm-hmm. And the younger, younger sister really hates it here, and she's mm-hmm. trying to go away to college. And she was going to go away to college a year ago, but she stayed to take care of their dying mother. Yeah, they're, they're played by uh, Morgan Saylor and uh, who's the other one? Um, uh, Sophie Lowe. Sophie Lowe. Uh, Morgan Saylor is the younger one, mm-hmm. and on the day after they bury your mother and they have the funeral, uh, she goes off and, and gets and she, drunk. And, and she learns that they're in financial dire, yeah. dire straits, like, at the funeral. Yeah, like, her older sister's been keeping mm-hmm. it from her, because I guess she didn't think, mm-hmm. uh, uh, she was very responsible, of course she's not. She runs off to a bar, she meets some random dude, they start, like, drinking, doing drugs, they, like, run into, like, the local, like, sign of, like, a lumberjack or a seaman or something like that, just standing there. And, uh, they end up at the guy like creepy shack on the docks it's, and it's a house no it's, it is a shack it's, it's like, like a shack yeah. on a on a like a disused dock mm-hmm. where and, it clearly takes a lot of women for and, not just conquests uh yeah she actually he actually like opens up his trunk and she sees like a bloody scalp in bl- there. yeah like blood and hair and so she's legitimately worried and he chases her around and she kills him uh, well, because she figures out really early on that he is a local serial killer. Yeah. And he goes after her and she harpoons him through the throat. The problem is... And, and then hides the body and goes back home. Well, she... she, she, she brings the body... Uh, no, no, she doesn't. She, she leaves, leaves the body, goes back home and tells her sister what happened. Yeah, and their sister is just like, well, let's just call the cops. It was clearly self-defense. Mm-hmm. It was clearly self-defense, right? Eh, he wasn't <laughs> actually have a weapon at the time 
just sort of speared him through the throat. I, I speared him through the throat, and, and then I hit him with the brick, and that doesn't look too good. And so, so all of a sudden, big sharp fishing knife. Yeah, and they go, and there's a whole chunk of it that's just too. Young people who have, you know, they've seen movies maybe, but they've clearly never done this before or thought about it before, struggling to take care of a dead body. And they do, and they throw it into the into the ocean, and that's when that's when everything starts going to shit. Because in any movie where you cover up a murder. It only leads well, to worse stuff, which is why well, if I ever accidentally kill somebody, I'm just going to call the cops. I vowed this a long, long time ago. Like I watched stuff like Blood Simple or uh, Shallow Grave, and I'm just like, I'm just going to call the cops. I'm going to say, listen, I know it looks bad, but I figured it was better to tell you than not tell you, and then I have to kill all my friends. And it just it would have been bad, and the cops would be like. Yeah, you've uh, seen enough movies. Yeah, yeah you're you fine. This yeah. works. Thank you. Uh, but <laughs> Thank you for saving us time and paperwork. That's the inciting incident and actually lets them into kind of the dark underbelly of this tiny little kind of nothing fishing village in Massachusetts uh, where we they run into who is more or less the local crime kingpin played uh-huh. by Margot Martindale. Yay! Who is great in everything and she's uh, really great in this yeah and and she's actually like she's really threatening she has a good knowledge as to like what the ins and outs are she has a really good memory she's really sharp she comes at people but she also feels a lot of fatigue she's kind of wearing down a lot she plays a really good character mm-hmm. Uh, and she's also a really great actress. So and she's and she, she she's runs, a real standout in this movie. And like her big, mm. uh, uh, her big like purpose in town is she runs oh, uh, the local brothel. brothel she's yeah. she all the sex workers in town come stay at her bed and breakfast. And what we discover over the course of the film is that everyone was sort of fine with that. Because there's a lot of fishermen coming in and out of the port. Mm. It sort of gives them a place to go. But over the years, Margot Martindale's might have gone a little mad with power. Like, she mm. might have just... She st- at first, she, at first she, she was the town's dirty little secret, but, like, it was a, it was a necessary evil, not, they not thought. To, and not to reveal too much, yeah. but, of course, the dead mother plays into a lot of that. Yeah, so. and I love that there Which is, like, Which might be a little predictable, but, yeah. There's, like, this cadre of old lady Illuminatis who, like, secretly, like, oh, yeah, are in charge of everything in town with June, the... June Squibb is one of them. Um, uh, Marceline Hugo and Annette O'Toole from mm. uh, Superman 3. Mm. Uh, they're great. They're just old yeah. ladies who they—they're not mayor or anything like that. They're just kind of in charge. Yeah, <laughs> and they just insert themselves everywhere. And we don't know. Clearly, everyone in this town, on some level, mm. has made iffy choices. Everyone is morally compromised at some point. Everyone is protecting the town and or themselves and over time they have made choices that look really bad from the outside. And Mm. this murder and the girls trying to cover up the murder and the women who may be involved or may not be involved. um, Like any good crime story, the crime reveals a ton about everybody involved and everyone on the periphery. Mm. And that's where this movie really excels is that sense of place that sense of character that sense of community i would love to see a tv show set in this town and yeah and the the sea shanties are actually just adding a lot of character between this and the lighthouse golly that part of my heart that longs for sea shanties is really (laughs) getting fed uh what what's kind of frustrates me about this movie is i feel like it's teetering on the precipice between two different kinds of movies okay uh one is that sort of serious crime drama that it's doing really well and i feel like it it goes like, it tries to incorporate a little bit too much quirk from time to time mm. that I feel it starts to undercut the drama a little bit. And then it starts to go, it, like, drags on and on and on. There's a lot of new plot points that are introduced. And after a while, it just starts to, 
take too much time clearing, like, wrapping up all its loose ends. Yeah, I, I was fine with that in terms of the pacing and everything like that. I, I, uh, for, I don't know. The pacing seems a little all over the place. I was with it. The thing that, I feel like the thing that really secures the film and, like, keeps the tone in check and keeps the pacing going is actually the score mm-hmm. uh, by Jordan Dykstra and Brian McComer. Great score. <laughs> what a great, mm-hmm. wonderful, propulsive, clockwork, mm-hmm. quirky score. Like I love the music in this. It's shot by Todd ben who also shot uh, Hustlers. Oh, okay. Nice. So nice, it looks nice, amazing. Nice. Uh, for me, the problem I have with the movie is that this is a story about moral compromise and ethical complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which everyone, at some point in this movie, does something that, you know is worth raising an eyebrow for or condemning them. But theoretically, we're supposed to get to know all these characters so well that we understand why they did it. Yeah. Those Mm -hmm. girls covered up a murder. They haven't lost my sympathy. You know, those, those, uh, 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 Margot Martindale has done terrible things for a long time. She hasn't lost my sympathy. I feel like there comes a point in the movie and particularly its view on sex work where mm. it stops being morally complicated and starts being the, kind of the morally... fallen woman. Yeah, yeah it starts talking the about how sex work is inherently woman, yeah. bad and we have failed everyone who has ever done sex work. And I... I, I listen, I, I know sex workers. They're, they're, they're people, a lot of people have chosen that profession and they like that profession. I find that condescending and I find it frustrating that a movie that was otherwise very intelligent about moral complexity and the idea that there is good and bad versions of everything and every person and every person Mm. has decisions that they have made that to other people might seem questionable ultimately falls back on, okay, everyone's pretty cool, but sex work is always bad. And I'm like, okay, you know, I feel like your movie was more interesting than that. And you, you just hit too hard Mm. on this. Your protagonist killed a guy and, and hid the body. Mm. And that's not as bad as working as a sex worker. Yeah, this is what we're going to get hung up on. Like, I found that frustrating. It's not too heavy-handed on it, but considering how impressively nuanced the characters and the narrative and the themes were of the film, by the end of it feeling like it was just really just hammering home one moral message... Mm. Struck me as undermining the overall framework okay. of the movie. It's still really entertaining, though. Yeah. Like, I can disagree with it on that ground and still say to myself, what great performances, what great sense yeah, of place, what yeah. great music, what a wonderful, just overall, just small-town crime story. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, that part rubbed me the wrong way. No, that's that's a fair criticism, I yeah. think. Um, uh it takes a dim view of sex work. Uh, more than that, just sort of in terms of filmmaking, it, mm. it falls back on a few kinds of cliched characters, uh, especially in the. Um, oh, let me look up the, the name of the actress, the the sex Which worker one? character. Oh, oh, um, um, D, played by Meredith Holtzman yeah, from, from Glow. Um, yeah, she felt she like. Glow? Yeah, yeah, she felt at like a, a very, very much. Like Maybe a, I'm thinking of a different character then, because okay. the person I'm looking up right now is not in Glow. Oh, the the actress from Glow who okay. played, plays the the sort of vengeful character. She seemed like a lot, a little bit more. Oh, of a Gail cool. Rankin. That's it. That's who it is. That's. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was looking at the wrong person. I am to be. She plays uh, the girl in Glow who's uh, into wolves. Sheila the She Wolf. <laughs> I thought she looked familiar. I was driving me nuts. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, um, she she plays kind of a cliched character, which mm. was a little bit of a letdown, uh, seeing as how the two lead characters and Margot Martindale are actually a little bit more complex than that. And even June Squibb and Annette O'Toole and all them, like they reveal more depth to their characters than is yeah. at first 
you know, seems present. Uh, I would just like to say that, you know, we're we're in an interesting year right now mm. for movies where movies aren't playing in theaters. And one of the things that I've heard that they're having conversations with about the Academy is what do we do if this goes on long enough that there aren't a lot of films eligible for the mm. Oscars? Because one of the rules of the Oscars is it has to play in theaters. Yeah. And it has to play in theaters before it goes uh, to streaming, usually. Uh, so... If there aren't a lot of films that are eligible, what are they going to do? Are they going to delay the awards until like halfway through next year or maybe skip a year altogether or maybe for one year change the rules so that streaming movies are allowed? And if they do that one, mm. Margot Martindale for Best Supporting Actress. <laughs> for sure. She's incredible. If this movie had come out in theaters in November, she would be part of the conversation. Mm. She's that good. She's always that good. But this is a really juicy role for her. Yeah, and I really, yeah. really love the way that she uses her cane like an extension of her body. <laughs> She's great, and you can tell. Uh, speaking as someone who had to like walk with the cane for a long time, mm-hmm. like that's when I was recovering from my surgery. Like when you actually like have to use a cane on the regular, like you just learn that you use it differently. And I've seen people in movies walk with a cane who clearly just picked up that cane a week ago. Mm-hmm. Margot Martindale understands the physicality of walking with a cane and the way you use it for things that you would normally not. Think to use it for like it's just part of her body it's a thing she can do anything mm. with she's great she's wonderful in this and i hope you see this movie uh for her in particular because she's really good yeah. and and the sea changes and the sea changes and the it's sea all changes. really good yeah all right so we're gonna get to the streaming club in a second but first let's wrap up all these movies all right. these are the new releases of the week uh let's see we started with the platform on the critically acclaimed mm. scale of c minus to c plus where c minus is below average mm. not recommended to flat out bad C is average, mm-hmm. and C plus is above average and or great. Where do you put the platform? Uh, the platform is uh, is a, a high C. Okay. Uh, it, it is a really good taut thriller. It's a really good political metaphor. It's just imminently watchable. I'm going to give it a, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's not so nuanced or terrifying that it's a classic, but yeah, it, it's something that you could just watch uh, mm. casually, have a good time, and absorb all of the ideas in it. I'm going to give it a low C plus. I think okay. this movie is it, – it takes – uh, a high concept and works out all the angles and finds the way to make it not just like salient thematically, but also extremely thrilling. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though maybe it's a little heavy handed, I think there's room for that. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to highly recommend uh, the platform. Big time adolescence. Big time. I'm going to give that a low C plus. Okay. Um, uh, this could just be because I relate to it. This is sort of like that's a, fine. an experience that's a little, a little bit personal to me. So that's, I have to say that, but uh, yeah, I think this gets something uh, really right about the way young people relate to one another, especially the way uh, two members of disparate age groups relate, uh, w- the way maturity functions. And I think the performances are all pretty great across the board. Uh, John Cryer is a standout. I, I don't disagree with any of that, but I found ultimately the film to be a little simplistic, like more so than it like. It, like I, I, it, I think it's achieved. More, more nuanced than you get. I think I think the nuance around. is there, but I think the nuance is mostly there to hide how simplistic it is. Oh. Like well, that's. Wait a minute. I, I, <laughs> no, right? It feels like they're, they're simplifying the details, but not the moral core. And the moral core is actually pretty straightforward. So I'm going to give this a high C+. Plus. Everyone in it is really, really good. I just mm. don't see myself remembering this movie. Uh, a high C+. Plus or no, I'm sorry, high C. High C, high C. Okay. No, sorry. Not high C+. Plus. Yeah. A high C. This All is right. a high C. It's good. I, I think people are going to enjoy it, but I don't see myself remembering this movie very well at the end of the year, oh, let okay. alone I'll, in two years' time. All right. I've, I've been thinking about it a, a little bit since I saw it. Well, so. it hit you harder. That's fine. Uh, Stargirl. Mm-hmm. Uh 
excellent performances and fun scenes aside, it's just a kind of a lot of nothing. Mm. And it hits the Manic Pixie Dream Girl cliches so hard without really adding a lot of nuance to that, that if you're watching this movie with your kids, you're might probably going to be pretty frustrated. But if a kid's watching it, they'll probably just like it fine. Like it's, mm. it's, it's, it's relatively harmless, but I think if the perspective had been shifted, it could have been legitimately very good. So it's a Disney film. It's the, the kind of Disney film Disney used to make all the time. As, yeah, like about, Disney about used to make this kind of movie all the time. Now they make it like once a month because they do stuff for Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, we we just did blow uh, the man down. Blow the man down. <laughs> blow the man down. I'm, I'm gonna. It. I'm also gonna give a high C. There are like some narrative things and some cliches in it that I, I object to. But Margot Martindale's raising this thing up hugely, yeah. and I think there's a good um, amount of wickedness mm-hmm. all throughout this, and a great deal of atmosphere. It's yeah. it's just a, a terms of plotting that keeps mm-hmm. it down. I'm actually giving this one a low C plus. Right. Uh, I, I find it incredibly stylish. The mm-hmm. music is wonderful. The characters are all great. The performance is all great. It looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing keeping it from being like, ooh, I'm definitely going to remember this at the end of the year, and I still might, mm-hmm. uh, is I feel like the movie is getting at a lot of moral complexity, but much like Big Time Adolescence, it falls back on some relatively simple messaging by the end uh but at its best this is a very entertaining crime movie and i do hope people see it yeah yeah. all right so let's move on to the critically acclaimed streaming club once again we gave the option of films that were on netflix's classics section uh the films that we selected for you to pick from were actually weirdly enough kind of bifurcated i picked two sports movies and you Mm -hmm. picked two like Oscar-y message movies. <laughs> so I put up there The Natural, mm. which I'd never seen before, and The Longest Yard, which I'd mm. never seen before. Uh, had you seen either of those movies? No. Oh, okay. So mm. either one of them. Oh, great. no. I, I saw The na- Excuse me. I did see The Natural okay. uh, when I was a kid, when okay. it came out. I, I, I saw s- The Natural. But I have not seen either version of The Longest Yard. Okay. And uh, uh, you put up uh, Driving with Daisy, which I have seen. Okay. Uh, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I had not. And people mm. voted for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Which is a movie that is actually, like, incredibly important in terms of kind of opening the doors for different kinds of storytelling to marketplaces that Hollywood assumed would never see a movie with a black lead. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was nominated for, won some Oscars, it was a big, big hit, Uh, but... Watching it today, I think I had a different reaction than it was probably intended. Yeah, and in fact, um, you can kind of see the this, this straight through line from something like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner straight to something like Green Book. And um, and that's not a dig on Guess Who's T- Coming to Dinner because this movie came out in 1967. And in fact, if you look at the timeline of things, this movie was made uh, just before uh, Loving versus Virginia, the landmark miscegenation case, mm-hmm. was uh, was passed by the Supreme Court. That is yeah. banning miscegenation laws. So, yeah. but, but before <clears throat> the Loving uh, uh, case, which is actually the subject of a pretty good but not amazing uh, movie called an, Loving, an, an okay movie. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Ruth Nagg is particularly good in it, but uh, it was basically illegal in many U.S. states for people of different races to marry each other. Yeah. It was just illegal. Which is, of course, fundamentally absurd, but that was the letter of the law for a long time. So in, into the, into the late sixties, ridiculous. Yeah. So <clears throat> in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, this is the story of uh, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy are an older, very liberal couple. I love that you mentioned them first. Yeah, because but it is their story. It's their story. The other people are, are yeah. supporting characters in many ways. They are an older. They consider themselves a very liberal couple. They told they taught their daughter that racism mm. was wrong and you know so be as progressive as possible. Mm. Uh, their daughter, who is played by Kath, is it Catherine Houghton? 
Oh, who plays the daughter? It's um, um, yeah, Catherine Houghton. That's yeah, right. Catherine Houghton. Uh, she comes home. She just was on a long trip in Hawaii, and she comes home, uh, and her parents what? don't know that she has met a man. She has met a man. She has fallen deeply in love with him, and after only ten days, ten days, they've decided to get engaged. Yeah. Now, ordinarily, you tell me that you've gotten engaged to someone after 10 days, and I'm like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, listen, I understand you're in love and stuff, but um, maybe date for a few months? Like, we have a long engagement at least? Let's not, like, <laughs> jump into this? But on top of it all, she's getting married to Sidney Poitier, mm. who, is, who is a young doctor. Relatively oh, young. Oh, he's oh, 14 years older than her as well, which yeah, is also a red flag. He's actually much older than her, and he's yeah. a widower. Yeah. Uh, he, he's had a wife in the past, so he's actually he's, – he's older. He's much more experienced. She's only 23. They hammer on that fact a lot. Yeah. And, they, and she is very idealistic, and she's more of the – sort of the uh, – but daddy, I love him. Uh-huh. Uh, kind kind of mindset, you know. Yeah. Everything's going to be fine. The world's changing. Nobody's going to give us any trouble. Now, this was made in a time when uh, they couldn't go to certain states as a married couple. Yep, uh, they'd be arrested. Yeah. However, uh, this is an interesting sort of flashpoint mm. because, like, before the movie had come out, mm. that Supreme Court case had gone through. Yeah. Like, and so uh, it was shot. The Supreme Court case went through, and then it was released. Yeah. There's a joke in the movie about. Like, oh, guess who's, like, more people keep getting added to this dinner mm. uh, uh, guest list over the course of the film. And at the point, someone says, hey, someone else is coming to dinner. And, and the, the Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy's maid says, is it the Reverend Martin Luther King? Uh, shortly after the movie came out, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh-huh. And they actually took that scene out of the movie for a long time. So this is Wise. Just, that was a wise choice. My point is, is that as mawkish and... Sometimes wrong-headed as this movie can be, it was topical. Super like, topical. It was on. Yeah. It was made the, well, at the was, right time. It was made to, at, to, to sell tickets yeah. to this thing. It was made at the right time. It was a big hit. It was up for a lot of awards. But it's also about how um, this would make a good double feature, actually, with Get Out. Oh, uh, because, you can when you find because, uh, when I'm the watching the first is, act of this and I'm just like, oh, it's Get Out, but doesn't have, but there's no horror. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so the exactly idea is, it's about a. a a wealthy, uh, upper crust, older, white liberal couple who have to face the fact that they're not as not racist as they thought they were. Yeah, and Sidney Poitier, while they're like driving to the house, is just like, you should have warned them. Like, yeah, I, I know you I'm, think that they're very liberal, yeah. but this is they're not. They're going to have a moment. Oh. And uh, it's not going to be a good moment. It's going to be bad for everyone in the room. And the drama comes from the fact that uh, Sidney Poitier, who play, who's great, he's, he's always great. always been great. Uh, Essentially lays down an ultimatum to the Spencer Tracy character, and he says, I want to marry your daughter. I, I love her. I want her. But I'm, if you say, if you, like, he's putting it to, to his bride's father. Yeah. It without it talk, without telling up, her. Without telling her. It shouldn't be up to him. No. But he says this anyway. He says, uh, I'm going to offer you an ultimatum. If you say that this is going to be bad for your daughter, if mm-hmm. you think this is the wrong choice, then we won't do this. We, I don't we want to alienate your, uh, your daughter from her parents. She yeah. loves you too much, and yeah. I can't be responsible for that. Which, so which if is, you tell me... Which is a fine way to put it, but why are we putting all of this on the Spencer Tracy character? Well, and on top, because Catherine Hepburn has a moment, but then she's on board pretty quickly. Yeah. Especially when she gets to be performatively not racist. Because initially... <laughs> 
<laughs> initially, she she talked to Spencer Tracy. I'm like, are you sure about this? Because I know this they're going to have a rough time of it, and I'm worried about our daughter's future. They're going to have a rough yeah. Right? Like, like we're worried about you guys. Yeah. And then it turns out Catherine Hepburn's like assistant at the gallery she owns. She's less subtle about how she's concerned about the racism. That, and as right. soon as Catherine Hepburn is just like, oh, well, in contrast to her, I can be less racist. So she fires her. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Catherine Hepburn's on board for the rest of the film, which is actually kind of a subtle bit of storytelling, and I appreciated that nuance. Um, but, uh, yeah, the problem with this movie... Well, there's a lot of problems with this movie, but like, there's also a lot of good things in this movie. There's well, a lot of good performances, some the, really the, good writing the here and there. Performances are great. At, yeah. you know, for the time, it was really daring, yeah. and I, it's the performances are so good. It's kind of covering up for the fact that it's the white liberal man's story. Well, yeah, it's about how oh, will Spencer Tracy grow up? Yeah, and uh, granted, that's not a story that can't be told, but it also seems like we're reducing this everyone else's story. To just plot points in his life. And a lot of the storytelling that they do in order to make this movie as dramatic and intense as possible fucks it up for me. And so, for example, one of the movies, things this movie gets been criticized a lot for is that Sidney Poitier's character is kind of objectively perfect. Like, he's, 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 he's rich, a, he's, he's a, a doctor, doctor yeah. he's well-respected, he doesn't have a criminal record or anything. Like, there's nothing wrong with him. So the only thing Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn have to object to the marriage is that he's black. Here's the problem. There are actually other things they can object to. Like that he's much older, that he's, that 14 he's a widower. Years old, yeah. He's 14 years older. Widower, he's, he's I don't got, really well, see as a huge issue. But it's like, not a huge issue, but it is a bit of baggage that they don't address yeah. a lot. Yeah, so, yeah. He's, he's 14 years older than the daughter. And I'm sorry, uh, Catherine Houghton's character is way less mature than anyone else in the movie. Mm. She is starry-eyed and not taking this seriously. Uh, at least at the very end, Spencer Tracy gets to tell her to shut up. I appreciate it. I want to talk about her character a lot because I think she's the real problem with the movie, her mm. character. But uh, even so... So on top of that, on top of the fact that he's too old for, on top mm. of the fact that they barely know each other, yeah, uh, he's also going behind his fiance's back and saying, "I won't marry her. I'm not even going to run this th- conversation by her if you tell us not to do it." Mm. And on top of that, because she wants to get married right away, they have a day to think about that mm. ultimatum that he has given them. That sucks. That's a shitty thing to do. And yet. On top of all of that, we have Catherine Houghton's character who is getting off on this. <laughs> like she talks well, about how like my parents young, are liberal, like, they'll they'll get over it, but yeah, every time someone challenges it or every time someone goes, "Oh, I'm a little surprised." She goes, "But you're fine with it, right?" Like it's like a test. Yeah, she's she, testing she, her family and they find her just very smug about it. Well, she's she's young. That's I part know. of her character trait. Uh, it's think, not appealing. I, 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 <laughs> it makes her seem like a villain. It's not appealing, but I, I think it's understandable. I think it's she's written fairly. Um I don't necessarily like her. I think she's a little bit too much of an idealist, and I think that is a big problem with this. The, the character, like, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn are such great actors, and this, yeah. uh, Spencer Tracy got an Oscar nomination. He didn't win. Uh, Catherine Hepburn did win her Oscar. Mm-hmm. She uh, tied with Barbara Streisand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um, reason she tied with Barbara Streisand is because Barbara Streisand voted for herself. <laughs> that's like, that's why. She said, like, I voted for myself. If I hadn't, I would have lost. <laughs> wow. Um <laughs> This was Spencer Tracy's last movie, so there's a lot yeah. of affection for him. He actually yeah. died before the film rele- was released. Yeah, in, um, fact they, in fact, they had trouble making it because studios knew he was in ill health and thought, yeah, and what then, if he can't finish it? And in fact, uh, dur- near the end of his career, he only worked with director Stanley Kramer, who made yeah. this. And uh, 
He's good. This, in it. He's he's good in it, and you can sort of see that he actually has a lot of life in him when he's giving yeah. a lot of these speeches about how I'm I'm clearly dying. I'm dying yeah. here, like on on camera, and I'm I need to assure people that I'm okay with a changing world. Yeah. And he is essentially the old Hollywood establishment in new Hollywood, because it's the, the late sixties at this point yeah. saying the world has changed. You guys need to catch up. Yeah. It's another example of the Academy kind of patting itself on the back saying, yeah, we, we hear the lesson and we need to pat ourselves on the back. It couldn't be about Sidney Poitier's character. It couldn't have been about a doctor in Hawaii who meets a young woman about his conflict and about couldn't have been about her even. Or, like, yeah, his, it's like, about how they fall madly in love and the yeah. nuances in their relationship and how their characters operate. No. They're kind of cardboard characters. It's and also Sidney not Poitier even about Sidney is, Poitier's parents who only show up in the last act. Yeah, that is could also have been just as good a movie. But yeah, no, it's got to be about how the older white people have got to okay this. Yeah, and, and Bea Richards, who plays the mom, yeah. also won an Academy Award. So she win? I thought she was or, just or nominated. She, excuse me, she was nominated. Yeah, yeah. she didn't win. Uh, but yeah, it's got to be about, it can't be about how the world is getting progressive. And yeah, there are challenges involved with that. And mm. there's there's some actual decent, subtle humor here where people all of a sudden are have to actually confront their... Mm surprise have to confront their racism have to confront mm. their ideas that it's easy to have if they're never challenged yeah but when the whole movie is about how old white people get to give people permission to be less racist now mm. because they've figured it out for themselves i'm so glad spencer tracy figured this shit out after, after he he ran into a young black man's car earlier mm. in the movie and just paid him off and who played that guy who played that guy? Derville Martin, from uh, the director from Dolomite. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Isn't that fun? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't look up that guy. I recognized all, yeah. the name in the credits, and I was like, hey, that's fun. Uh, here's something I did look up. Uh, this movie was remade in 2005. Oh, with Bernie Mac. With Bernie, yeah, and, and they, they uh, race-reversed it. So yeah. um, it was about Zoe Saldana bringing her young fiancé. Ashton Kutcher? It was Ashton it? Kutcher. Yeah. So, yeah, bringing a young white man into their family. And that was and just called Guess Who? Guess Who? Period, question mark. And the director of Guess Who started his career as an extra in Sydney Poitier movies. No he, shit. He was in They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. That's fun. And he worked on Sesame Street. He's actually like a really prolific actor. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, but yeah, listen, there's a lot of stuff that like, and unless I actually want to make something clear here. Mm. Because Sidney Poitier has a great speech in this where he's actually talking to his dad. Mm. And his dad is he's he's also concerned. This is that you will regret this decision. This will be too difficult for the relationship. That it'll be hard on you. It'll be hard on your kids. Mm. And he tries to pull the card of I did not raise you for you to make these kinds of decisions, and you owe it to me to not marry this woman because mm. you know I I worked my ass off for you to be able to go to medical school, so you didn't have to get jobs, and you could actually focus on your career and all kind of stuff. Sidney Poitier has a great fucking speech where he talks about, uh, I don't owe you shit. Yeah, yeah. You owe me everything because that's what fatherhood is. Mm. You do everything you can for your well, child. And, yeah. and if I have a child, I will do the exact same thing. I will owe and that the, child everything. Mm. Like, you don't get to have a say right now. I will listen to you. I will respect you as a person, but you don't get to control me. You don't well, get also, to tell me what uh, to do. This sort of intergenerate, and he actually has a re that overly great line. It's kind of a cliche, but he's Sidney Poitier, so he delivers it wonderfully. Is, um, 
like I, you under you think that I need to struggle the same way you did. Yeah, you worked so hard. Well, the whole point is you worked hard so I could do something like this, so I wouldn't yeah. have to think about that struggle. That's the point of your struggling is for you to take it all upon yourself and pass on less struggle to your children. It's like you know, like little young children who are. Um, Whose parents were poor and they worked their way up and they got obtained a lot of wealth and now the kids have a lot of wealth and the whole and now they're getting grief for having wealth. It's yeah. like the point the reason their parents were working so hard was so their kid could have that luxury. Exactly. That's the success. It's supposed of that, to improve yeah. from generation to generation. However, so it actually ha- socially has been improving and now the crotchety old father is is resenting that this much progress has been made. And, and almost, I think that's a really good moment between the father and the son. Characters. I appreciate the idea of generational dynamics and mm-hmm. how you know there because uh, um, Spencer Tracy has a line where he's talking about how yeah we we've been working this whole time to create a more inclusive, less racist world. But he Spencer Tracy says I don't think we're going to get there in fifty years. I don't think we're going to get there in a hundred years. Mm-hmm. So he's just sort of hedging his bets and just trying to protect his daughter rather than let her mm. actually push it forward. Yeah. And Sidney Poitier as well. Like, instead of just living the world the world we want to live in, we have mm. to assume that that's impossible, which is, of course, a fallacy, and it's going to mm. prevent anything from ever happening again. But one of the things when you watch this movie now is... This movie... Stanley Kramer was a very liberal director. He's a very progressive mm. person, and, and at least for the time. And... When you look at movies that were trying to be progressive in their era, even ones that were trying to be like this flashpoint immediacy, like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you run into things where that was progressive for the time. Right. Not so much now. Yeah. And yeah. like one yeah. of the things like, that... Go back and watch The Gentleman's Agreement oh, at some point. <laughs> that, was, that aged badly like right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like there's a bit where, where Sidney Poitier is talking about how people are looking at me mm. as a person of color and I only see me as a man. A man. Mm. And that was very progressive for the time. But one thing that's been a really important part of the conversation in recent years is the idea that that is actually not the best way of looking at it. Because if you pretend racism, race doesn't exist, it's easy to pretend racism doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. So it's one thing to treat <clears throat> someone equally, but mm. to pretend that their race has no issue whatsoever mm. is a way to diminish people's struggles and to overlook a lot of the actual real issues that persist that we have not yet moved on from from society. Yeah, yeah. So that whole scene, even though it is powerful for the time, isn't really yeah. considered the best, the most like progressive, no. successful mm. you know thought process. Just a few years ago, we had a movie called Get Out, which dealt with similar things about yep. a, a white upper crust. Now, this was about the young black man, actually. It was told yeah. from his perspective. Yeah. And it was about the, the an upper – he goes to visit his white girlfriend's wealthy white parents, like, out of their country home. And they, they purport to be very, very liberal, but he senses a lot of things – that are making him very, very uncomfortable in terms of their racial attitudes. Yeah, turns of phrase, yeah, little, little looks, uh, you know. The fact that all of the staff at their home are also black people, and we'll get mm. to the Tilly character in a second. Yeah, because but, that um, happens in this movie as well. Yeah, um, where... So he is actually in there, he's feeling really, really uncomfortable about the persistent kind of very subtle racism that still exists. And as it turns out, of course, those completely open-minded white liberals have a much more sinister agenda. And the idea uh, behind Get Out is that all of that little racism mm-hmm. that a movie like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner can mine for humor mm-hmm. and sort of progressive forward thinking is still racism. Yeah. And yeah. it's still just as bad and scary and problematic. Here, here, here's my problem. 
these films are 50 fucking years apart. Yeah. And we're still dealing with the exact same shit. Yeah. That's not good. No. <laughs> That's real bad. It's real bad. Yeah, it is. So I'm looking at Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and thinking, and, you know, rather than say, wow, how progressive for the time, I'm just lamenting how no progress has yeah. been made. Yeah. Like, almost none. It's fascinating sometimes when you look at because like it's it's easy in to terms look of at these like little subtle racist characters. Well, because now, there's there's certain look, films yeah. that like from from you know fifty hundred years ago that still feel relevant because they are part of these sort of universal aspects of the human condition stories of struggles, adolescence, uh, pride, so, uh, love, loss, whatever. Yeah. All of these things are are very universal. Um, the social issues of race, like specific race racial mores in America. Yeah, to, to talk about these yeah. these specific films are things we're supposed to be improving. Mm. All the time. And it's really frustrating. No, it's, it's really bloody frustrating. This movie this should is, be completely out of date. It, it, it should. It, it, if should, there are any justice in the universe, this movie yeah. should be embarrassingly I'll, out of I'll date. I'll say one thing that really, really dates this movie. That awful sale they put uh, Catherine Hepburn in throughout the second half of the movie. <laughs> where it, like it has... A, like, it, it's like this gray, shapeless yeah. smock thing with a white stripe down the center and a zipper up the back. And then on, like, the right shoulder, it looks like she's wearing a toga. It is the worst dress. Oh, the thing that dates it for me <laughs> is um, there's two scenes in the movie. Oh. One when, uh, like, the, the deli delivery guy shows up and he's, like, delivering food for the oh, dinner the, that they're having. The, 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 the dancer who escaped from West Side Story? Uh, no, not even West Side Story. Like, he escaped from uh, from the producers. Like, that's... <laughs> he shows up, and he's, he's listening to... This... Th- there was a time in movies, and I think people sometimes don't even really think about this, mm. when using existing popular music, even just as ambient noise, was rare. And in fact, this movie pretty much only has one song in it. It was written for the movie. It was mm. um, A Glory of Love. Not which, to be confused. which I have on like lounge CDs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, which is yeah. the movie. The song is fine, and not to be confused That's... with "Glory of Love" from Karate Kid Part Two, which is a better song. <laughs> I'm calling it right now. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you lost me for a second. But uh, but because they're not just using music that was popular in the '60s, whenever we see there's they go to a Mel's Drive-In, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's still an existing like chain of cafes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little expensive now, but it's still very good. Uh, there's a scene where they go to that to get an ice cream so that Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy can escape and have a conversation in private. Mm. Um, and there's also a scene where this like young, hip dude delivers meat to the back door of the house. The music that they play to show that kids in the 60s are they're sure nutty is fucking terrible. It's this <laughs> awful, repetitive, shitty Catalina Caper music that just really, I mean, again, this is supposed to be a story about how ah, the kids of the future and they're showing us the way and there's so much we raise them to be progressive and now they're more progressive even than we are and isn't that I, a good thing? I believe and yet the every, children are our future. Yeah, and every time we actually cut to youth culture, it's embarrassingly tone deaf and, and off yeah, and it's yeah, terrible. Yeah. Oh, I forgot the other thing I don't like about uh, Sidney Poitier's character. You know, he's kind of a sleaze. Oh, well, he, there's a he, bit where he, like he makes eyes at like the the hot. He uh, immediately when they come into the house for the, the first time, he hasn't mm. met the parents yet. There's a young woman who works at the house sometimes, mm. and she is yeah, a young, young black woman. Yeah. yeah, young black woman. And she is young and statuesque and very beautiful. Mm. And I kind of thought she'd be she, more of a plot she, point. She's got like a big beehive hair yeah. and a nice dress. Yeah. And there's there's a bit where he's just, like he's looking at her, he's staring at her, and his fiance is like right next to him, and he's like. Who's that? And she's like, oh, that's, uh, she works with uh, Tilly on, on like a couple of days a week. And he's like, 
Which, Which day is it? And I'm like, Sydney! No, well, she, your, she, your fiance's right fucking there! She, she immediately admonishes him. It's a playful moment. It's, it's playful, fine, but yeah. it's, it's really. If, if, I think I, that if moment If you did fine, that, would that yeah. be fine? Is that Part an okay of, behavior? It would that? depend on the kind of relationship I had with my fiance, I, but I sense that that was okay between the two of them. So that's, They've known each other for 10 days, and they're supposed to be engaged, and he's already making goo goo eyes. Yeah. And other, other people, woman, yeah. like we only like, have so much in front of her. We only have so much time, and is, we need to prove that these two yeah, people yeah. are in love and need to be together. It's the distracted boyfriend meme, yeah. I and am. so, like the distracted boyfriend meme really doesn't support that. <laughs> I, I don't hate him or nothing, and he only does well, it like one other time. But like, it's still yeah. weird. I, I wanted to talk for, uh, for a minute about Tilly. Now, Tilly is there uh, the the black. There's no other way. She's the black maid. She, yeah. she lives with Spencer Tracy and, and Catherine Hepburn. And she's been living with them for decades. Yeah, and she, she, she's considered part of the family. She helped raise. Essentially a member Catherine of the family. But she is actually the one who uh, admires pro- uh, progress the least. Mm-hmm. She's actually the, the most conservative and uh, yeah. who wants to support sort of, quote, the old way the yeah. most. And, uh, and by the way, she's can... played by Isabel Sanford from The Jeffersons. Yeah. Who, yeah, who yeah. plays... Uh, Wheezy was her character. Actually, no, I never watched the Jeffersons. Sweet Wheezy, uh, Louise. Sweet. So I guess we, yeah, Wheezy. Yeah, okay, um, yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, she actually has a really uh, very intense moment where she confronts Sidney Poitier and understands you're just you're you're. You're just climbing. You're cl- you're a social climber. Yeah, I'm accusing you of being a slow- social climber. You know that's not the way things are done with us. Yeah, and like and and she actually uses the N word to his face. She's the yeah. only person who does. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in the movie, obviously. And and I think she, like her perspective and like that re- that like really harsh explosion is much more exemplary of the conflict that was going on at the time than anything else in the movie. Mm. Uh, I, I think we need to hear a, a little bit more intensity from this kind of movie. It really kind mm. of is trying to handle a really delicate issue with kid gloves and is trying to pass it off and make it really, really acceptable. This is why I'm thinking of something like Green Book. Which well, is look, it's a, an agenda movie. Yeah. It, this no, movie it's, it's was mess- trying it's to... It's a message film and The movie fine. was trying to convince people mm. over the world, many but of it, whom are intensely, if, openly, publicly racist, but to I think, be less racist. I think if you're going to do that, confront a little bit more. Be a little bit more aggressive about it. Don't have it be this gentle story of whether or not this white guy might give blessing to this marriage that these young kids could go off and do on their own. Any, well, young kids, not Cindy Poitier, but... Yeah, it's 37 in this movie. The, At least that's why he's playing. Where these people could run off and get married on their own because they're adults and they don't need this guy's blessing. Yeah. And I think it would have been great if he said, "I'm, you know what, it turns I thought I was really not racist, but I'm thinking about this more and more, and I thought this was just about me protecting you from the states out there where this is illegal, but I have to face something in myself where I realized I wasn't okay with this because I'm uncomfortable with my daughter marrying a black man. Like, he actually says, he says that I am racist, I don't give you my, my blessing. Mm-hmm. And then they turn around and say, fuck you. Yeah. We're going to do it anyway. Well, kinda... We don't care about that. But instead, he actually get he actually says the phrase, screw you. You get to, you get to be the ones to say screw you. Why is he telling them they get to be the ones? They should be the ones to say it. Yeah, which is my, which is why the whole ultimatum that Sidney Poitier mm. gives them strikes me as really contrived and forced. Yeah. And again, doesn't make it look like they're mm. even in that good a relationship. Yeah. And again, I, Catherine Houghton, like her whole character is just mm. her wandering around thinking that everything is okay. And if everything isn't okay, she just gets to throw it into everyone's face about how progressive she is, mm. more so than her mom, more yeah. so than her dad, more 
more so than her priest, more so than everybody. Yeah, the, the, old, the old racist. Priest. She just gets to be. She just gets to be rich and white and brag about how progressive she is. And I don't see what he sees in her. She strikes me as so much less mature, so much less interesting. Like I kind of would wish we could have had a prequel that's just them dating, so that I could buy it. Why he would be attracted they to, only to a get woman to, like her. They yeah. only get to have a couple of short scenes alone together. Mm-hmm. And the, most of that time is talking mm-hmm. about her parents, where he's mm-hmm. nervous and she thinks it's going to be fine because she's basically, she's going to test them and they'll pass. Yeah. A part of me was watching this and was expecting some kind of David Mamet ending where she would be, where Professor Tracy would finally give his blessing and she would like, yes, you have passed my test. Allow me to introduce Tony. He's a Groundlings actor I met in, I met in Hawaii. <laughs> and uh, this has actually been all just a ruse just to try to see if you were really progressive enough. Like... Oh. That I kept expecting that, and like it's, it's, not, it's not that um, clever. This kind of story has been told time and time again uh, over the course. We already had a remake of this in 2005. Um, it was also uh, remade uh, as La Caja Fall, essentially, basically, which which itself was remade as The Birdcage in America. Very similar films, um, yeah, about uh, a super conservative family who has to come meet uh, a young married couple, but. The their potential son in law has gay parents, like two yeah. two gay men. He was raised by gay two, men. Yeah. Two gay men. Um, I never the, saw the, the original Lacage of Full. Birdcage is very funny. The Birdcage is actually like again, this is a, another thing where context matters. But it came out in the late nineties when gay characters really weren't leading gigantic uh, a Hollywood productions a lot. Yeah. And here was uh, you know Robin Williams and Nathan Lane playing the main characters as a loving, as, as a, sweet yeah, couple. As a, yeah, yeah a, a couple, like a gay couple in their fifties, to run a gay nightclub in Miami, and they were just. That was just to be accepted. And I love that movie for that. Because, and again, I never saw the original, but I love The Birdcage because they're offended by it. They're mm-hmm. offended. We want us to pretend to be straight. Yeah, the, the son is actually depicted you to be as kind of a dickhead in that. Yeah, uh, we like, raise you um, to be better than that, and maybe uh, we'll do it for you, but it um, hurts our feelings. Uh, Dan Futterman is the name of the actor. Yeah. I don't know why I remember that. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, they're, they're really offended, and I think that, that the son comes across as kind of a dickhead is really important in that movie. I think so. And uh, yes, it banks on cliche. I understand that. There's a you lot know, of there's, there's a lot of broad yeah. stereotyping going on in that movie. Yeah. But I think for the time, it was pretty. Progressive. There's a lot that works um, in it, and I assume in like another like 20 yeah. years, when that movie's 50 years old, yeah, and, people and, are going to look at it and go, "Well, there's a lot of things that don't work, but yeah, there's also yeah. a lot of things that do." And and I'm I'm guessing as we move forward, there's going to be other kind of uh, this exact same story. We need to take our new more progressive marriage home to our much more conservative parents story yeah uh when are we going to get the trans version of the story uh, it's something's going to come mm-hmm. pretty soon in fact you probably already had it out there i just haven't haven't been seen it yet yeah it. Um, if anyone knows that please recommend it to yeah, us on twitter is, is there a guess who's coming to dinner for a trans couple yeah or, i i have not seen it yet either but mm-hmm. maybe there is um I, I will say this going back to guess who's coming to dinner um you know when you're trying to be topical, you're going to date yourself immediately. Mm. Uh, either because you didn't have enough context to really say anything for posterity, or because you're going to be so of your time that any future time is, of course, going to look back at it and go, well, at most, that's history. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that's that's still quite good. The performances are mostly very excellent. There are moments and speeches that are very strong. There's also moments of speeches that are mawkish or 
uh, plot elements that are very, very contrived. And I'm sorry, I just don't buy Catherine Houghton's character at all. I don't. She strikes me as so insincere this whole time. Um, I, but I, I don't have as much. I understand everything you're saying about yeah. it. I don't take as much issue because I think. She is being depicted as sort of too young to be anything but an idealist. Which is why and I think which that, is, which is in why, that context, I think her character works would fine. Be, but again, um, though, it feels like she's not part of the movie. Everyone else is having <laughs> complex and nuanced conversations, yeah. at least trying to. Where and she's, she's just she's like, la-di-da, everything's fine. Yeah, she, I agree that the, the, the two main characters are a little too... Uh, perfect. Uh, Sidney Poitier, luckily, is a talented enough actor yeah. that he actually brings a lot of texture to the he's character. So good. Because he's so damn he's good. He's so damn good. He's not working anymore, but he's still alive. He's in his 90s. There's a part that, of the movie where I think it's Tilly who yeah. says to him, uh, I don't believe in your motives, I don't trust you, and you're not even that good looking. And I'm watching the movie and I'm just like, Okay, he is that good looking. Did, did, Come on. Are you taking a look at young Sidney Poitier? Seriously? He's, he's pretty damn handsome. Like, everything else I can see, but, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Take issue with that. Um, uh, it, it, you need to see more films with Sidney Poitier. Oh, yeah. uh, Sidney Poitier Just is amazing. Um, I mean, I, I got to know Sidney Poitier, like, from his 90s career, specifically the movie Sneakers. He's good uh, in Sneakers. He's good in Sneakers. It's a big ensemble, though. He doesn't yeah. get, like, a lot of, like, big bits in it, but yeah. he's he's always wonderful. He's like, do you know why they fired me from the CIA? My, My temper. temper. <laughs> he's so fucking good. Yeah. And, like, and he's, like, he's kind of the straight man in that movie, so I he know. actually gets to be, it's like, hey, did, uh, do you know that they uh, they flew Kennedy out of Managua like a week before the earthquake? So you're saying the CIA caused the Managua earthquake? Well, well I, can't I can't prove it. it. And Sidney Poitier <laughs> hangs up. I can't talk to that guy. That's, I never would have thought uh, Sidney Poitier and Dan Aykroyd would be a great really comedy good. duo, but they're really good. Yeah. It's the same way they fr- same people who framed Pete Rose. Ah, um, <laughs> Sidney Poitier yeah. also a pretty good director who did a lot of comedies. He did Stir Crazy, which is a bit of a classic. Mm. His last movie he ever directed though was the Bill Cosby movie Ghost Dad, which it, that um, was a little bit of an odd. E- even terrible e- movie. E- even um, not even before we knew what we know about Bill Cosby, that movie sucks. Yeah, he was in, he was in uh, In the Heat of the Night, which yeah. actually did one despite. Best Picture the same year. He won Academy Award for Best Actor for Lilies of the Field. Uh, He's won two Oscars. No, he won one Oscar and was nominated another time. Uh, He's the first black man to win that award. Uh, He's also like a Bahamian ambassador. Oh, that I didn't know. Yeah, like he's actually like served in office. He's had a really interesting life. Um, And his daughter is out there knocking him down. So yeah, yeah, he's, he's just... A towering figure, a legend in the Hollywood firmament. Just a legend. Uh, yeah, go go watch his movies to celebrate him and yeah. remember that he's 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 an old man now, but he's still alive. So and to be celebrate that he's still and to their there. and to their credit, Spencer mm. Tracy and Catherine Hepburn were no slouches either. And well, in fact, Sidney Poitier yeah. apparently. <laughs> Uh, was a bit intimidated by them and did some of well, his scenes as, as they would be, but yeah. and did some of his acting like when they weren't on set just because he was yeah, too distracted by them. I, but Spencer Tracy, for a guy who's dying, mm. he gives a good performance well, in this. I'll, I'll say this. We, we've talked a lot about how this film is a little dated and a lot of the drama is mawkish and you don't like the daughter character. I, I think that it... I do take a, a good deal of uh, respect from the fact that they are trying to tackle an issue without context without mm. the benefit of context yeah it's a, right there, now yeah, it's, it's an this immediate is right now this is this is how people we don't know the future we don't know how this is going to date but we're going to have the conversation right now yeah uh, we watched a, an hbo series on cancel too soon called here and now which was a similar thing we're going to talk about the issues right. that are going on right now without the benefit of context and i think that sort of immediacy is a kind of drama that is completely vital 
it, it dates, doesn't always age well, it, but yeah. It doesn't, it, it, by design, doesn't age well, but yeah. I think in the present, it serves a very important function. That's a good point, um, and we don't and talk think, about that a lot. We yeah. think about posterity and how important that is. It's okay mm. for some things to only be interesting or necessary yeah, right, for a brief period right of time. That period. And, and it's think, interesting to revisit the, those, and it's weird to revisit those, and they don't mm. always work later on if they ever did, but... They're interesting, and they're an interesting sort of snapshot of a time, so at th- least of I a time when white filmmakers wanted to tell a story from the perspective of old white people. <laughs> and even though they chose to make the – Stanley Kramer made this movie about uh, the uh, Spencer Tracy character. Uh, Spencer Tracy, he was right at the end of his life. Yep. He had been sick for a long time. He had dealt with substance addiction for many, many decades. Uh, a lot of crippling depression and guilt as well. L- mm-hmm. Look up his story and like the story with him and his son and – how the reason he and Catherine Hepburn never got married, it turns out he never got divorced from his first wife. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of a lot of drama in, in, with uh, Hepburn and Tracy. And he steps out onto the screen in this movie. He's an old man. He looks older than he is. And he's mm-hmm. carrying a lot of drama and pain in every line on his face. Yep. So when he finally gets to that mawkish speech at the end, he is selling it in a really kind of genuine way. That's He's given the performance. The writing isn't always helping yeah. him out, but he's giving the he, performance. He's giving the performance. So yeah. even though we can criticize this film for being not as progressive as it thinks it is because it chooses to be about the white characters and it's white filmmakers. Yep. We can at least admire that Spencer Tracy and and Sidney Poitier and Catherine Hepburn mm-hmm. all gave dynamite performances There's... and are really trying to address something as best they can uh, that is going on right now. There's some good craft in here. There's yeah. some excellent performances. There's some of the writing is very good. There are individual scenes and moments that are excellent. And I can't say that about Green Book. Yeah. Where Green Book is just this sort of the, bland, the, maudlin, feel good. Hey, most, we cured racism this week. The most memorable scene in, in Green Book is when uh, Viggo Mortensen is on a bed by himself and folds up a pizza like an envelope <laughs> and then eats it that way. That's that's not a bad way to eat pizza. That's fine. No, and, and, it's, and it's hilarious. And I love it. It's like... The, the joke is that he he's just – he's a bottomless pit. He can just mm-hmm. keep on eating and eating and eating. And so that every scene he's in, he's eating some gigantic thing. And in one scene, he's just eating a whole yeah. pizza but by himself, not even sliced. I, there's no point in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner when mm-hmm. white people tell black people how to be. Yeah. And that's like a the, lot of Green Book. And uh, that's God. so behind even Guess Who's Coming to mm-hmm. Dinner. Like that's mm-hmm. less progressive than this o- yeah. over 50-year-old movie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that uh, the, is... The, uh, the, anything screen, else? the screenwriter of Guess Who's Coming yeah. to Dinner uh, also wrote The Lady Killers. Yeah, which is his a name, great his comedy. Name is William Rose. Yeah, he wrote some really good movies. Yeah. What else did he, he did something else he did I really the, like. the Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, it's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Of course, which classic. Stanley Kramer also directed. Uh, one of the best comedies ever made. And that's not an exaggeration. No, no, no. Uh, that's yeah, that's yeah. very, 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 very mm-hmm. funny. Uh, he, he, had a great, he had a great career. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, yeah, so last thoughts on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner before we move on. Like, are you are you glad you saw it? Do you feel like you I'm, understand I'm, some things better I'm, I'm now? I'm glad like, I saw it, and I'm actually a, a little. My eyes were opened a little bit about sort of the history of the Academy because it puts a lot into it perspective. I thought this was going to be like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm, that it was going like to be really this, intense, like yeah, this really kind of gritty, intense, very raw emotional drama. And it turns out it's really kind of a careful easygoing kind of melodrama that is yeah, really trying, trying to not pro- to offend yeah, anybody, yeah, yeah, even I, the racists. I really thought that this was going to be really hard hitting and I was really surprised at how, what a softball it was. Yeah. Uh, and I have to sort of remind myself where the country was to understand 
how hard-hitting it was once considered. Yeah. Even though you can probably point to a lot of films from the same era that were a lot more hard-hitting, hard-hitting about race. One hundred percent. And like, and again, you know, this I, this is clearly feels like talented people working within a studio system trying to make something progressive, yeah. but also not intimidating. Right. Because they wanted to make money. And and again, on some level, they want the message to reach as many people as it possibly mm. can. Sacrifices were made, and I think um, some of them were, were ill-advised, and I think some of them wouldn't be, those decisions wouldn't be made today, unless it's from the producers of Green Book, I guess. But, no. uh, but yeah, I'm actually really glad I saw this. One, because, you know, it's Spencer Tracy's last performance. He's a brilliant actor. Uh, Sidney Poitier, I'll see anything he does. Mm. Um, and, uh, it unlocks a lot of stuff. When you think about just what, how huge a movie this was, this is a movie that was, you know, considered a bit of a trailblazer in terms of uh, getting different kinds of movies, different kinds of dramas to mm. parts of the country that there was like, oh, we'll never see a movie starring a black man. Like, that was a thing. That was considered mm. a major uh, a move for the industry that we can, you know, the, the conventional Hollywood wisdom that a movie like this couldn't do well was proven wrong, which mm. doesn't mean that this is the movie that changed everything. It's just that this is the movie that made Hollywood realize, oh, we were dumb. Yeah. Um, so that's significant. But also, again, this is one of those movies where when you see it, it unlocks a lot of things that came out afterwards that are influenced by or directly commenting on it. And in particular, mm. if you love the movie Get Out, which I do, and you've never seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all of a sudden, a lot of it clicks more. And I understood the gist of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and I understood like a lot of the basic you know elements of it. Mm. And I knew that Get Out was playing off it a little bit. I didn't realize how much like the first act <laughs> is like just Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, yeah. but the whole thing is... It's told from the... The black man's perspective, now, yeah. Instead of and yeah, every the every white character, every anxiety Sidney Poitier has at the beginning of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is just instead of it being it'll all be okay because it's a Stanley Kramer movie, it's a uh, uh, no. In fact, he was downplaying it, and it's mm. way worse. <laughs> like so, it's an yeah. it's a smart reversal, and it works really, really, mm. really well. Um, so that is it for the cancel too soon. Critically acclaimed. God, you damn said it. it again. How do I keep this? Doing is that? critically acclaimed. This is the critically acclaimed. Uh, the, the critically acclaimed streaming club. Thank everybody for listening. Um, We'll be back next week uh, with a ton of new reviews for new streaming movies, uh, including uh, on Netflix, uh, the new movies Uncovered, The Decline, and the documentary There's Something in the Water. Uh, and also, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have access to Shudder at the time, but there's a new movie coming out called Daniel Isn't Real. Maybe we'll see that. Okay. Um, oh, oh, Daniel Isn't I've been hearing about this one. I've heard that's good, yeah. so I want to try to I want to try to check that one out. Uh, and uh, the winner of the poll for this week for the uh, critically acclaimed streaming club, uh, we picked uh, classic comedies. We were going on uh, the Amazon streaming service. Yeah, Amazon Prime. So uh, Amazon, the way Amazon streaming service works, if you don't have it, is uh, a lot of things are you you pay a monthly or a flat yearly rate, mm. uh, and a lot of movies come free with that. You don't pay anything additional, but they have a ton of other stuff. That is also available if you pay a couple of bucks or more than that if it's a brand new release. Uh, so we're only going off of the stuff that's on Amazon Prime Video, which means you don't pay extra. Those are, that was our yeah. rule. And we wanted to go with classic comedies that we had never seen because this is more of a drama, even though there's some funny bits. Uh, so the winner was Moonstruck, starring Nicolas Cage, Cher, and Danny Aiello. Uh, and I, I've never seen it. I've actually never seen it either. No, I, so it all works <laughs> out. Uh, it's it's a movie. I, th I, I'm, I have a vague memory that maybe my parents rented it when I was like eight, 
Maybe, yeah, I've, I've, like, but, I have a lot of memories of a lot of films like but that. But I don't think that counts. I kind of only remember the scene where Cher slaps Nicolas Cage. That's the mm. only thing I have a vivid memory of. And, and he gets to overact, and he has a wooden hand. I remember that much. Oh, I didn't, I didn't remember that much. Yeah. There we go. So that's fun. So mm. uh, we're going to watch that one. That is currently available on Amazon Prime. Might be available on other streaming services as well. Uh, and we will watch that for the first time, and we will, uh, we will have a long conversation about it. And uh, if you want to vote for future episodes, uh, or future installments, rather, of the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, uh, that's going to after this last poll it's gonna go on Patreon for one dollar and up you get to vote every week for the older movie we're gonna do on Patreon mm. and then the next poll which will be for the episode two episodes hence uh, will be focusing on films that we haven't seen that are on the Criterion channel yeah uh, so getting classy <laughs> Um, okay, so yeah, a lot of cool stuff coming next week. Thank you, everybody, for uh, subscribing to the show. Thank you, everybody, who joined us on Patreon lately. A lot of people have shown their support, and we really appreciate that, especially now with a lot of work and a lot of stuff in the industry drying up. That really helps us keep going. Yeah, if you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. If that. you have the means and you want to contribute, uh, we, we sure would appreciate it. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you don't have the means... Fair enough. We don't. <laughs> We're, th- yeah. Times are really hard right now, so we totally get it. But if you can leave us a review, if you have one already, that would really help as well. That would be really awesome. Or just tell people about the show if they're looking for new podcasts because they have a lot more time to fill, for example. Mm. That would be nice, too. Um, and be sure to listen to all the other like podcasts and all the other cool people out there. A lot of people from the Schmodown are doing a lot of streaming stuff right now where they're mm. having live conversations with people. R- Roca is doing a lot, from what I understand. Uh, John Roca yeah. is doing a lot. Emma Fife is doing a lot um oh uh the bandit is doing a lot as well video, uh, the, look up video drew She's, video drew is yeah. wonderful the action army of course is doing a lot of wonderful stuff with uh, uh drew and ben mm-hmm. um of course we have a lot of other friends in the podcasting universe in particular we want to give a shout out to linoleum knife with alonzo duralde been on this show a lot yeah dave yeah. White and alonzo duralde yeah alonzo duralde is also whitney's partner in the schmodown right now but they have a wonderful series of podcasts and a lot of exclusive stuff on patreon as well much like us we have exclusive stuff on patreon mm-hmm. um so, like, if there are people in the entertainment sphere, uh, particularly uh, writers and podcasters and the like, uh, these are people who typically don't have, like, a large nest egg to fall back on right now, <laughs> now that we have to all stay home and movie reviews are drying up and mm-hmm. it's it's really, really hard. So if you have the means to support any of the content creators that you love, now is a really, really good time. And if you don't, we totally get it. The most important thing is that you all stay safe. Uh, you know, in this time of a global pandemic that you, you know, practice uh, social distancing as much as you can. Uh, just flatten the curve. Do everything you can because we're all in this together and we're all trying to uh, protect each other. Yeah, and, ride, uh, ride this out and stay as healthy as we can. Right. So we certainly hope that you are safe, happy, healthy, and we're going to produce as much content as we possibly can uh, to help keep you entertained and distracted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a good thing for us, too, because it helps keep us entertained and distracted. So, anyway, we just really appreciate you being on this journey with us. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, and uh, never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>